Today I'm speaking with Dia Khan. Dia is a two-time Emmy Award-winning and twice BAFTA-nominated documentary film director. She's the founder of Fuse, that's F-U-U-S-E, a media and arts company that puts women and minority communities at the heart of telling their own stories. In 2016, she became the first UNESCO Goodwill Ambassador for Artistic Freedom and Creativity. She's made at least three films to date, Banaz, A Love Story, Jihad, and White Right, Meeting the Enemy. Uh, and we talk about the last two, Jihad and White Right. You really have to see her films. Dia is doing something truly extraordinary. She's doing something extraordinary as a person, even more than as a filmmaker. Now, you'll, you'll hear in the second half of this podcast, in the last hour or so, that we don't agree about everything. There's definitely some daylight between how she views the collision between Islam and the modern world and the way I view it. And she clearly doesn't fully align with my friends Majid and Ayan Hirsi Ali. So there is a further conversation to be had on that front. But I hope you'll view the exchange we did have there as a model for the kind of conversation that millions of people could and should be having about these issues. Unfortunately, audio quality for this podcast is a little spotty. There were a few sound problems on her side. It's not too bad, but it goes in and out at a few points. I think it's worse in the beginning. So apologies for that. In any case, I love this conversation. I think Dia is fantastic. If you watch White Right, you will understand why I think so. Disagreements aside, I now bring you Dia Khan. I am here with Dia Khan. Dia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I know I mispronounced your last name. How do you say Khan when you're not an American who can't pronounce Middle Eastern names? Uh, you know, that's not bad, actually, Khan. I mean, the, the only difference I, I, I would say is Khan. So it's a kh. But, but I mean, right. Khan, I mean, okay. most people say that, so not bad. Okay, well, it is great to meet you um, by phone, essentially. We're, we're over yes. the internet. And you, you, you've explained to me that there's some explosions in the background. You're not in a war zone. What, what, what's going on? I'm, I'm not. It's Guy Fawkes Night. So there's a lot of fireworks happening, uh, but it should calm down, I uh -huh. think, in, in, in another hour or so. Okay. Well, as long as you're safe, that's, that's all we care <laughs> Absolutely. about. <laughs> Absolutely. So you and I actually have met over the phone. I, you might be aware of this, but these were less than auspicious circumstances. I think you were in the room for my ill-fated conversation with Mariam Namazi. Do I, do I have that I was, right? that's correct, yes. Because I did a film, yeah. uh, when was it? Uh, was this a couple of years ago now, I think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I did a, a film about apostasy. And, and basically, you know, young people that are leaving Islam, both in England, but also in other countries, and just what their experiences are like, and then also the kind of support or lack of support that they find within the Muslim community, and then organizations like Maryam's, the Council of Ex-Muslims, that, that provide that much-needed support for, for these young people. So I was following Maryam a lot around that time, and then, you know, obviously you guys had your conversation. I also happened to be in the room. And eventually just turned off the camera. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's good. Yeah, no, I haven't seen the footage of that, but I experienced my side of the conversation firsthand. And 
I can only say you were you were very briefly a a friendly voice on the line, and then I was delivered into uh, Miriam's hands, and and we had a a um, what many view as perhaps my least successful podcast. It certainly was in the top three, but it was kind of bewildering because we we agree about many things, but we got bogged down on debating open borders and just couldn't get back to dry land. I do think that was a was a shame because I, I do think that you know I think you have a lot a lot in common actually and and what was a bit frustrating for me being a, being a listener was it just felt as if you were both sort of talking past each other and, and you know yeah. that's that's always just sort of sad and 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 a waste when that happens. Well, I am uh, virtually certain you and I won't have that problem having watched your two I think your two most recent films that are available on Netflix, Jihad and White Right. I'm just so amazed at what you're doing and, and such a huge fan. And I just hope everyone watches these films. Uh, our conversation will, will be absolutely no substitute at all for, for actually seeing them. So you just have a, an enormous fan in me. And um, I just want to talk about what you're doing as a filmmaker. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. It's it's you know you you when you when you do your work and you know you're so, I mean, film is such a sort of obsessive, really long, really hard process, and it's it's just hard for me to look up from from the work that I do. It's it, because it, it just is so all consuming. So when people finally see the work and then the responses to the work is always just, you know it's it's touching and confusing and 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 you know quite amazing for me to realize that other people have a relationship to the work that I do, you know, because for me, it's a matter of just sort of satisfying my own curiosity, really, is, is what these films are, are an exercise in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got to be something more than curiosity here, though, because what you've done here is you, you've, you're kind of responding to a moral emergency in both films and putting yourself on the line in a way that really seems unusual for a filmmaker. So, But, but before we jump into the, to each film, just tell us a little bit about your background. How, how, how do you come to be dealing with these topics? And, and I was surprised to learn you, you grew up in Norway, which you betray seemingly <laughs> no evidence of. So, so who, who are you and where did you come from? Well, so I, you are right. I was born and raised in, in Oslo, Norway. Come from a Muslim family. My father is Pakistani. My mother is Afghan. Very, very liberal. Very, I would say, sort of an eccentric family in the sense that you know we had lots of artists and activists and and in the house when i was growing up it's some of my earliest memories of of you know just sitting and playing on on the carpet when my my father and and my mother would be entertaining and having conversations about politics and about human rights and about theater and about music and and with with feminists and with activists and human rights defenders from from that part from their part of the world so i sort of grew up understanding that that's 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 what life is like that's what you know muslim women are like even but the sort of my my dad is a bit of a strange guy he had a lot of experiences of racism in norway and one of the things that he had in his mind was that the only way you can get past that is and he gave me this lecture when I was actually quite young. He said, "Look, there are only two professions in the world where your race won't matter, your gender, your your religion, your background won't matter. If you work harder than everybody else, and you remain patient, 
and just stick to it, then eventually you'll, you'll, you know, be able to do well in life. And one is sports and the other is, is within the arts and particularly music is what his love was. And so at the age of seven, he basically decided that my profession was going to be music. So I started studying music and this was North Indian and Pakistani classical music that I studied from the age of seven. Very, very rigorous training. Very, uh, I mean, my dad was wonderful, but also a very strict, very harsh person when it came to commitment to music. And I always sort of joke about this, that, you know, my dad didn't, you know, arrange my marriage or anything like that, but he, you know, he chose my profession for me. Anyway, in Norway, I very quickly started doing public performances, both on TV and at music festivals and various places. And sort of became, I would say, this mascot for, for, for multicultural Norway. You know, this little strange girl who was doing this strange sort of music and kind of a symbol of how well Norway was doing with all of its sort of, quote unquote, new arrivals from all around the world. And everyone felt very good about themselves and patted themselves on the back. But as my, my success continued, I started getting more and more negative reactions as well f- from two sides. One side was saying, you know, what is this? little basically paki which is a derogatory term for people from Pakistan and, and South Asia doing on our TV all the time you know send the you know people like this you know they need to piss off back home and then the other side that I started also getting abuse from was from my parents community and the Muslim community in Norway is actually quite small but harassment from that side also started getting very very intense to the point where by the age of 17 I had to pack my bags, buy a one-way ticket uh, to London and left. So was sort of exiled from Norway, which is is strange in a way because a lot of people leave difficult countries in search for safety in Norway. But for me, it was was, the opposite. Let me just see if I understand here. So you had a very liberal Muslim family and it sounds like you didn't escape all of the, the Southeast Asian kinds of pressure one can get from one's family, but it was directed toward music rather than religion or conservative social norms. And so your being a, a, a female performer put you on the radar of religiously conservative people who then made your life miserable? Is that- yes, yes. And, 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 and their, their reasoning was that they consider music to be unacceptable. They consider music. They 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 consider music to be a very low profession, a profession that is engaged with by prostitutes and and dishonorable people. And people would often say, you know, you come from a good family, you know, why are you engaging in such a such a immoral and dishonorable profession? And I remember, I think I was you know eleven, twelve years old, and you know we used to have these sort of delegations of men would come to our house and try to talk sense into my father saying, you know, we don't even allow our boys to engage in this profession. What are you doing dragging your girl into this? And he, was, he would always show them the door. He would never care. And he would always say, look, this is my daughter, my decision. And, and you know, you people just, you leave. You, 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 get, you have no jurisdiction over her. And my grandfather on my father's side also lived in Norway. He was one of the first immigrants from Pakistan to, to come to Norway to work. He's very, very, very religious, very conservative. He helped build several of the mosques in Norway and very loved and respected in Norway. So, you know, so when people had, um, when they struggled with my father, then they would go to my grandfather saying, look, she's bringing shame on the entire community. 
she is leading our girls astray by showing them that you know they can do things like this and this has to this has to stop you know stop him and he wasn't able to do that and then eventually you know people started coming to me in the streets of of, of Oslo you know people pulled knives on me I was that on I was attacked at my own concerts people tried to abduct me from my own schools it became very very difficult and and you're a teenager at this point yeah yeah and and you know my 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 mother always gets really upset whenever she thinks about this you know cuz she she's she's like you know cuz I remember when we made the decision you know she was sitting at the kitchen table and she sat me down and she said look do you understand that we can no longer protect you? Do you understand that we can no longer keep you safe and that you're going to have to go? And I remember going, yes, I do understand that. You know, and my heartbreak sort of at the time was, I mean, obviously I was afraid of what was going on. And also, you know, I was afraid for my family because they were, you know, they stood by me and, and they paid a heavy price for that. You know, they were completely isolated and sort of pushed out by, by the rest of the community. But, but, you know, they still, they still chose me instead of the community. And, but I remember her just, you know, having to send her, her child away, you know, and, and still to this day, she gets really, really sad when she thinks of that time, you know, and my brother lost his sister, you know, I mean, we didn't have means of communicating like this back then. So it was really hard. You know, I left my career, left my friends, left my life, left my family, left everything behind. So it was hard. As you pointed out, it's it's amazing that you had to leave a Western society. Yeah, this is not leaving Pakistan or Afghanistan, no. which would be understandable. But, you know, yeah. but and, and and I think you know the the, the heartbreak for me was uh, the, my exit was a very public exit. You know, it, it wasn't something that sort of happened in secret. It 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 was you know sort of plastered across the the <clears throat> excuse me the national uh, newspapers in Norway saying that I'd been threatened out of Norway and all of this. And my, my kind of just sorrow at the time, sort of, you know, in, in the mind of a 17-year-old was, you know, I, that no one said anything. Nobody said that, hold on, this is wrong. And I remember kind of my way of thinking at the, again, you know, as a 17-year-old was, you know, I couldn't help but feel if I would have been blonde and blue-eyed, would people have behaved differently? Would they have treated me differently? And, and would there have been any kind of outrage then? instead of just quietly letting me go like that. And, and I always sort of say this, but, but I, I really felt like, you know, at the airport where you have, you know, there's always that one suitcase that keeps, you know, going round and round on the baggage carousel that nobody comes to claim that suitcase. I felt like that. I felt like I didn't belong to, to the Pakistani community. And I felt like I didn't belong to my country, you know. And, and that was a very painful, very, very difficult feeling to carry as a 17-year-old because you, you, you don't feel like you've done anything wrong. I did everything right. I was obedient to my father's dream. You know, I, I worked really hard, you know, and, and, and this is what you end up with is, is just loneliness and, and just a sense of deep, deep loss, you know, wandering the streets of London, having no idea what to do or who you are or, or, or how you rebuild your life. So, I mean, this is a very long answer to your question. No, no, it's good to get your, your backstory here. But ironically, so you, you, you go to London, which is also a center of Islamist and jihadist extremism. I, you know, I often think of it as being one of the worst in the West in terms of you know, your, your exposure to a, a radicalized community. I guess you, nobody knew who you were when you arrived, but 
just based on on your own films, uh, you're you're kind of out, out of the frying pan into the fire, aren't you? Yeah. Well, well, well. Yes and no. Because I mean, the reason I chose London is because you know I, I'd been here at the age of twelve, and and growing up in Norway, I always felt like you know this strange sort of dark child in in the sea of the blonde and the blue eyed. Uh, so I always, you know, had this feeling of never quite fitting in, never quite being sort of enough for for either side, not being Norwegian enough, not being Pakistani enough, you know, and and then the fact that you're a girl on top of it, you know, just adds all those that extra baggage. But coming to the UK when I, I remember when I was twelve, I, I I loved it because I could suddenly see people who looked like me, and and I suddenly felt like I didn't stand out in that way, and that's one of the reasons I chose that instead of instead of the US, for example, but where, but also US was too far. But anyway, I think, you know, to a huge extent, London is a, a symbol and an, an example of how sort of diverse cultures can coexist beautifully through, through some of the art and the music and the, the, the foods and, and the friendships and, and, and the, the kind of life that you see a lot of people leading. But then, of course, there is a flip side to that as well, that where you also see people on the margins of, of, of the society and these various communities also obviously you know, edging farther and farther towards violence and farther and farther towards separation and division and fear of each other. So, so, yes, it's a difficult place in some ways, but in other ways, it's also actually quite successful, which I think we don't really get to talk about or see very often. You know, when it comes to, you know, feminists within from from the Muslim context or it comes to robustly addressing some of the, the challenges that we face within various minority communities, I've seen that engagement in, in, in a much more impressive, robust form in, in England than I've seen anywhere else. So I think a lot of the solutions also reside in England as much as the problems. You must know my friend Majid Nawaz. Have you? cross paths with him? I have met him, yes. Yeah. Do you, do you align with his reform efforts at all? Or do you, is there daylight between how you come at this and, and how he does? I, I, I don't know enough about the, the, the reform effort, but, but the little that I do know, I don't think that we, we, we align. I mean, I, I, I understand and respect some of the work that he's doing, but I think on the reform side of things, it's, it's, I, I don't particularly see how that's effective, to be quite honest. I, I think people practice and manifest their, their religiosity in, in a multitude of ways everywhere. And I think that's where the key is. I, I don't think a kind of top-down, a, a kind of a, a choreographed reform is, is really needed. I, I think, well, actually, can you explain to me what, what you understand he is doing and maybe i'm misunderstanding and then then i can yeah yeah well basically he's he, i mean he's not cast himself as a theologian at all um in fact the the theologian that he relies on most of the time is is in your film jihad usama hassan i don't know if he if that film predates his association with quilliam but i think i'm i'm not mistaken about that that's the same no, person yeah, the same man yeah yeah and but you know, Manja's argument is, is simply that actually following the line you just suggested, that given that there's so much diversity in how people practice Islam, the only answer is a respect for secularism. I mean, you just, you have to keep your version of the faith out of public policy and out of law 
and everyone should be free to practice as they want insofar as their practice doesn't infringe on the, the well-being of anybody else. But it's just, there is no solution that gives you the one right version of Islam. It's just, there has to be a, a, a truly robust commitment to secularism in the Muslim world. And, and so, so what is the purpose then? So, 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 so when we say that the, the, the reform initiative, what does that mean then? Well, he, he actually does, he attempts to do many of the things that seem to have happened to some of the subjects in your film, Jihad. I mean, just you have people who used to be jihadists or used to be Islamists, and, you know, through some collision with modern values, they have relinquished their commitment to that theocratic project, and now they're far more liberal. And I mean, that, that's what happened to Majid, and, and that's what happened to some of the people in your film. And so the, the Quilliam Foundation just attempts to, to formalize how one goes about you know, reaching out to such people and changing their, their views on things. So I mean, he, he's just, Majid just finds himself in conversation with, with people like many of the subjects in your film. Maybe we should just jump into talking about jihad, because I actually want to spend most of the time talking about your, your second film, White Right, or not, not your second film, but the second film I want to talk about, which is, which is about you know, white supremacy in the U.S., because it's just a, an amazing document you have produced there. But let's start with Jihad, because we're already talking about this. So you're, you focus on this problem of religious extremism under the banner of Islam. And, and the, the main figure in the film is somebody who I, I, didn't, I, I don't know all that much about, but Abu Muntasar. Maybe introduce him and, 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 how, and how did you come to make this particular film? Well, so I wanted to try and understand. Well, there, were, there was a couple of things I was trying to do. One thing was that I wanted to understand why we were starting to see our young people leaving the UK and, and other European countries and wanting to go to foreign battlefields. So young Muslim kids who, who you know, we would imagine have, have every reason to, to want to live and, and want to just lead their lives as young people here instead of, of going on these foreign battlefields. So I was wanting to try and understand why is that? Why would somebody do that? And then the second reason, which was much more personal, was after having all the experiences that I've had in my life, I, I, I sort of got to a point in, in life where I was sort of done being afraid and done hiding and done leaving country after country and wanted to do something that I've never done, which is to sit down with the, with the kinds of men that were the reason that I had to leave Norway, for example, and, and see if it's possible for us to sit across from each other and have a conversation just about life and, 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 about, and about each other. And so I, I set out on that sort of search and then came across Abu Muntasir, who basically is one of the, the, the sort of founding figures of recruiting young people from the UK, actually from America in the past as well, Denmark, Germany, across Europe, recruiting young Muslims to go and fight on foreign battlefields. In his time, it was Afghanistan, it was Bosnia, it was Chechnya, Kashmir. And then he subsequently also then inspired the, the, this, this kind of trend of, of foreign fighters that we now have seen in recent years. And what was really interesting in speaking to him is that, you know, he was saying, 
that one of the biggest differences between his era and what we're, we're witnessing now is that when he was going over there, because they were fighting against the Soviets, he said that they were considered, I mean, as we already know, you know, they were considered to be performing a holy war that was of benefit to the West. So the, so the West was encouraging it and, and, and supplying weapons to these guys and, and providing other logistical support to the Mujahideen and, and the jihadis, basically. And, and he said, obviously, now the enemy has changed. So now this force is viewed as, as, a, as a very negative one. But anyway, the point about him is that he managed to sow these seeds of this movement and of this trend that we now have seen blossom through through the recent years. And, and he, by the time I got to speak to him, he's completely renounced his actions. He utterly regrets everything that he's done. And he is now completely dedicated every single moment of his life in trying to undo what he's done, trying to I mean, we spoke about forgiveness a lot in both in the film and also off camera. And, and I think he is trying to get to a place where he can forgive himself for what he's, the damage that he's caused. And I think that's why he's doing everything in his power now to try and work with young people, both in prison, in the, in the community. And he's still very much a believer but has understood that his understanding or his way of expressing his faith at that point was, you know, very misguided and, and something that he really, really feels a lot of pain about now. Yeah. And that pain comes through. He breaks down it, I think at least twice in, in interviews with you. And it's, it's really, it's quite mesmerizing to watch because he's, you know, he's right out of central casting as, as somebody, he's exactly who you would think would be the bad jihadist in your movie of the war on terror, and yet he has had a total change of heart. And it's extraordinary. I mean, to me, I mean, I have to be honest, I started the film very, very pessimistic. I mean, and, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. I, I, I had a feeling that I, I would just sit with these guys and that it would just be an uphill struggle and that we would never agree on anything. And, and, you know, I've, I've been afraid of men like this most of my life and, and to sit down with them and to be able to connect with them in the way that we did and for them to share as much with me as they did was really special. And, and I left the project far more hopeful that change is possible. You know, it's, it's no one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond the recognition that I did something wrong. I think it takes a lot of courage for people to admit that they did something wrong and, and, and wanting to try and do better, wanting to try and do something different. And he gets a lot of, I mean, you know, he, he after the film came out as well, you know, he got a lot of negative reactions. And the film did too, you know, because a lot of people, some people, you know, who, who used to love him, were saying, you know, you're a sellout and, you know, how, you know, what, what a coward you are. And he says that in the film too. But the backlash from sort of the rest of, you know, society was also very, very intense for him because, you know, people want to see him hung. People want to see him, you know, dead for what he did and don't see the value in, in where he stands today and what his sort of wisdom that he's arrived at can contribute towards the younger people that now are going through some of the same issues that he did, you know, and, and he was very different as a leader, as a recruiter. He was very different 
than his followers is what I found, which I thought was quite interesting. He was absolutely committed to the cause. He was very, very dedicated both to his faith, but also to, to kind of the, the geopolitical uh, realities at the time that he wanted to, to participate or contribute in, in some way. Whereas his followers were much more driven by a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, and, and kind of revering him as the father figure that they didn't have in their life. And I just find that really interesting that, that recruiters like him and leaders like him are able to sort of take those feelings and redirect them into a political cause and, and ultimately towards violence. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the jihadi worldview is incredibly compelling. You know, I often think of it as you get to be a, a spiritual James Bond, right? I mean, not only do you get to organize all of your craving for meaning and profundity and otherworldliness and whatever religious superstition you have on board, it has all of the, the satisfactions of supercharged religion. But in addition to that, you as a testosterone-poisoned young man get to join a gang right? And you get to channel all of your sexual repression and awkwardness and dissatisfaction into this project of becoming a warrior for God. And it, it really, it just, it checks all of the boxes in, in the male imagination and search for you know, self-aggrandizement. And then if you believe the doctrine, you're expecting an eternal reward, which is explicitly sexualized, right? I mean, you you get to hang with virgins with God forever, and it's it really is like the the in my view the the scariest possible set of memes to be spreading. But it's, there's no mystery as to why it's so compelling, with a few basic assumptions, just just you know assuming that paradise exists and that martyrdom is the way to get there. But also, I think what's really interesting is, is the fact that it's sort of emotional and psychological vulnerabilities is, is underlying a lot of this and, and, and the needs that these movements are satisfying for young men. I think what's interesting about that is a lot that we can actually do something about. And one of the things that I did find is that as much as, as you know, these guys, you know, go on about religiosity and that that's their, you know, that's their primary driver. And that's kind of the, I always call it sort of the window dressing that they put on top of everything else. I did find that other than some of the very, very committed guys, like recruiters, like the leaders, most of the followers were actually not particularly religious, actually. And, and that they were far more driven by you know, a sense of alienation, you know, and, and, and sense of, and this is something that I found quite similar, actually, between these guys and the white supremacists that I met, is, is just this inability to deal with shame and humiliation in their life, whatever the source of that might be, whether it's, an ex, you know, experiences of, of, of racism or abuse or trauma or, or, or whatever the specifics might be but just an inability to deal with that. And both and all sort of extremist movements seem to equalize whatever loss of, of manhood and masculinity these, these, these men feel, whatever emasculation they feel, this sort of equalizes and, like you say, sort of supercharges it for you. And then also look at the rewards. I mean, never mind the, the, the rewards in the hereafter, but you know, look at the rewards that you get while you're here. Look at 
for someone who feels invisible and powerless and insignificant, suddenly everybody cares about you. Suddenly you are on the front covers of every single newspaper. You're on every single newscast. The most important men on the planet, you know, men at the time like Obama, has to now think about you and talk about you and, and worry about you. I mean, that's extraordinarily intoxicating. And I mean, and for, so, so I agree with you that, that the religiosity or religious aspects of it that these guys you know, believe that they're, they're loyal to is, of course, a part of the picture. And so is also, you know, foreign policy. Because when I started making the film, people were saying, oh, you know, my friends were going, you know, find out, you know, is it foreign policy, grievances, or is it religion? And what I found is that, you know, obviously both are absolutely a part of the cocktail. But what makes somebody get up and act on that? You know, I have a lot of, you know, I, I, I was against the Iraq war. I have a lot of issues with, you know, American and British foreign policy as well. But there's a reason I pick up a camera and these guys pick up a gun. And I want to know why do they? Why are some Muslim men drawn to this? There, there are, you know, one point, what, six or seven billion Muslims walking around the world right now. And if the only qualifier to, to be a terrorist or to be a jihadi is to be a Muslim, then everyone would be dead by now, right? So, so that's, that's not enough of a qualifier either. So what, what underpins it? And I, so that was interesting to me is that it was these psychological and emotional vulnerabilities that, that were very much the reason why some of these guys are drawn to it and other people are not. And how cynically these movements and these recruiters are targeting these vulnerabilities that young men have. I mean, they're actively looking for these guys. I remember somebody saying to me during the course of making that film is, you know, when, when ISIS was very, very active online, do you remember? Yeah. There was a lot of online recruitment going on. And, you know, what I found is that their recruiters would spend hundreds of hours with young kids online, hundreds of hours. And, and you can only imagine, you know, some kid who, who is disengaged from the rest of his life, you know, maybe, you know, is, maybe doesn't have the kind of friendship circles or, or is struggling at home or is, you know, having some sort of expectations in his life from his family or from his country that he's unable to sort of live up to. And then you've got this person spending hundreds of hours on you, building loyalty, building friendship. I mean, that's extraordinary. And same with Abu Masir, the, the men, the, his followers that I spoke to, they would have died for him any day. They would have died for him in some ways before they would have died for their faith. Right. Does that make sense? So, so that, that intensity of their relationships within these groups, it, it cannot be underestimated, I think. Yeah. Well, it has a cult-like structure. You know, it's, yes. it's just you have a charismatic leader. You have various beliefs which convey meaning intrinsically. I mean, you're talking about a person's place in the universe and what happens after death and what, you know, what answer makes sense of every apparent injustice and struggle and failure in this life, you know, it's, it will all be rectified at a certain point. It's interesting because to compare the two phenomena, I mean, the, the, the phenomenon of jihadism and the phenomenon of white supremacy, they have so much in common. And as you say, it's, you know, the, the recruiting tactics are the same. The vulnerabilities of the young men in many cases are the same. I think there are a few differences. I mean, religion is, is one part of it. I mean, the religion does show up in the white supremacist side as well because they 
they have their own Christian beliefs that they, they kind of graft on to their, their racism and, and xenophobia, but it's, not, it's clearly not as integral to white supremacy as religious belief is to jihadism. I think for some of them, it, it really is quite intensely. And it, that's why it, my, my, my head was sort of wanting to explode when, when I was listening to some of the white supremacists and, and the, using some of the same terminology saying, you know, and suddenly I'm a warrior for God. Yeah, and yeah. Suddenly, and I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm, uh, it's, this is like a repeat. This is the, right. you know, the, the, the slogans and the flags are different. And, and you know, but, but it's the same guy. And also having been on the receiving end of death threats from from both. Yeah, you get it from both. Yeah, extremists. yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, reading some of those threats, it might as well be the same guy. And and what they say that they're going to do to somebody like me, it it's the same kind of stuff, you know, which is really interesting and telling, I think. But of of course, there are differences as well. But I I just find that the that the the type of personalities that are drawn to this seem to be very very similar across extremist groups. And also the recruitment tactics are very, very similar too. Yeah, and also there's there's honor culture at the back of both. I, I would I would think that the honor culture is a little more intense in uh, the the jihadist context, but still, the, you know, white supremacy drawing a lot of energy from southern honor culture is is easy to see some of the same dynamics there. Yeah, and 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 you know, I mean, gender is a huge part of this, you know, and I think. You know, the term toxic masculinity, I think, is absolutely appropriate for both as well. And both are sort of harping on to, to a past, to a golden past, you know, when, when, when everything used to be so much better, when it used to be great. And, and you know, and they can be a part of, of ushering in that past, which includes, you know, bizarrely, you know, putting women back into the home and into very, very severe and rigid gender roles and, and you know, only to... to you know, continue having either Muslim babies or, or white babies, you know, it's, it's really interesting, all the, the similarities there. It seems like in your encounters with your subjects in jihad, these were, I think, almost to a man, people who had thought better of the whole project and had come out the other side, at least to some significant degree. Was there, remind me, was there anyone in the film who was just fundamentally hostile to you and and a current jihadist or or Islamist whose whose views were just antithetical to everything you were trying to talk about. Uh, there were a couple of guys who are active now, but but you know, being a Muslim woman myself, it's even the most hardcore of men, hardcore you know, fanatic jihadi types. You know, many many of them, depending on how you approach them, will will find it difficult to be hostile just to be hostile. So, so th there's this kind of strange courtesy thing mm -hmm. <laughs> there. <laughs> and since I wasn't there to have a, a, a kind of an antagonistic conversation or to have, I wasn't really there to have a fight, it actually went, for the most part, it went okay. But I was very clear, you know, I, I mean, I, I am Muslim, but, you know, I don't cover my hair. You know, I come from the background that I come from. And, and my, my sort of condition was that I'm, I, I come as me, you come as you, and, and you know, we both leave our baggage at the door, and, and we meet each other as, as just who we are, and, and that was fine. Well, I must say, you, you do bring out the best in your subjects. I mean, it's, I've been describing you, it, it, with reference to, your, to the film on white supremacists, as kryptonite for white supremacists. It's just amazing <laughs> the effect you have on these guys. 
So let, let's just pivot to White Right, which, again, people just have to go see. It's on Netflix in the U.S. Do you, do you know whether it's globally available on Netflix? Uh, no, it's not. It's, it's available in, where is it, in the U.S. and in the U.K., I think. And then in Australia and Canada, other places, that there are their own broadcasters are streaming it okay. online. Well, people have to uh, get their eyeballs pointed in the right direction and watch this, <laughs> this hour-long film. So let's just talk about how you got into position to even shoot this, because you find yourself in Charlottesville just at the right time when all of this famously goes off. How did you come to be in Charlottesville? And, and I mean, you, you must have just heard that there was going to be a big demonstration and, and just assumed that would be a, a good thing to film. Well, so, I, so the, the, there's been several events at Charlottesville or rallies at Charlottesville last summer. <clears throat> Excuse me, I went to the first one, which was, which was the KKK was going to basically protest the, the, some of the statues being removed. So I went to that and it was maybe about 40, 50 clan people and what felt like at least a thousand counter protesters. And then there, some people were saying that actually there's going to be another rally coming up in a couple of months. You know, are you coming to that? And I kept going, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I barely even knew what Charlottesville was until that point. And then in the meantime, so I went to that and then the entire process of trying to get people to speak to me was very, as you can imagine, very, very difficult and very time consuming because most people that I contacted were not interested in speaking to me because I explained again, I was very clear who I am, what kind of background I have, what kind of politics I have, because I didn't want anyone to feel like I was you know, springing anything on them in person. I wanted them to know clearly, this is who I am and this is what I would like to do, which is to try and not necessarily speak about the ideology, but try and find ways to discuss why people are drawn to these movements. So most of them said no, not interested. And one guy, which is, uh, his name is Jeff Scoop, and he was the head of the, he is the head of the National Socialist Movement, which is the largest neo-Nazi group in America and one of the oldest ones. He wrote back, and was not particularly interested. And, but I thought, okay, well, at least he's, you know, not saying a complete no. So let me just push. So I pushed him for such a long time. And he finally said, okay, you get one hour, you come to where I live, there's a specific motel, you come to that one hour, and then you just leave. And I said, okay, thank you, fine, no problem at all. And five hours later, he says, uh, we're going to a rally, which will be in Charlottesville, and you are welcome to join us. And, and I said, wow, okay, great. And then I actually flew to Detroit, which is where he is. And he drove, and I sat in the car with him filming for nine hours. He drove from Detroit to Charlottesville. And, and you had one person, in another cameraman? or, or... It was just me and, and my colleague, a producer who also films, and that's it. So it was just the two of us right. in the car with, with Nazis, basically, mm -hmm. for nine hours. <laughs> talking about all kinds of very inappropriate stuff because nine hours is a very yeah, long time. You can find out who someone is if, oh after nine goodness. hours in a car. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and he basically said, look, I guarantee your safety. And, you know, you, you come, it'll be fine. And so the whole deal was that I'm going to 
march with them. I'm I'm going I'm going to basically do whatever they do so that I can get a chance to walk in their shoes and just see you know what happens. So as you can imagine, you know we pull up to these uh, you know different parking lots beforehand. All these various you know white nationalists and all these various white supremacist groups are gathering from all around America, and they're and I'm the only brown person. And, and one of the very, very few women, I mean, never mind even Brown, but just even one of the few women there. And everybody just looks at me like, like I, I just, they want to like slip my throat or something. It was absolutely horrendous. So even though Jeff had said, it's fine, you know, I'll, you know we'll look out for you. It's, it's, it's okay. It was horrible. Wow. And I kept being pulled off by different groups, you know, you know, who the, F are you? You know what are you doing here? You blah blah. Wow. And and then and then they also start saying. Then Jeff also starts saying. You know uh, the Antifa. So the anti-fascists will also be. You know the counter-protesting at the rally. And you know we usually get into physical fights with each other. You know sometimes there's there's been hammers that have come out. And 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 I'm just standing there going, Oh my goodness me! What have I just agreed to do? Was this the point where you felt the least safe physically in, in making either of the two films? Yes, yes. But, but there were several instances in, in this film where I felt very, very, very unsafe. I mean, this was just one of them. I mean, after, well, during the actual Charlottesville, so, so I march in with them and they're chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us. And they're chanting about deportations that they need to become, the, the, uh, what what is their chant anyway? The the now we start the deportations and you know and I'm marching in with these people and then the local community of you know people from Charlottesville and the counter protesters are shouting and <laughs> screaming at us as well and I'm trying to film in the middle of all of this and I'm wearing a helmet and and suddenly I get pepper sprayed because they were trying to pepper spray somebody else and it was just a mess and it was terrifying when all the violence broke out. Because the, the, the entire time, even before it turned into violence, the, the intensity of all of these people, everybody was on edge. And you could tell both sides were just raring to go at each other. So when it, when it happened, it was just, it was really, really terrifying. And managed to anyway get back safely to the, the um, barely to the <laughs> parking lot again. And then one of the guys said, oh, there's going to be this gathering afterwards and it's fine for you to bring cameras. You can talk to some of the people there and said, OK, that's fine. So in the mountains of Virginia somewhere off some dirt road in this compound was about 60, 70 guys there. And I remember talking to my colleague saying, OK, let's just get our cameras and go down. And he goes, no, look, let's let's just wait. Keep the camera in the car. And. If everything is okay, we'll come back and get the camera. And I said, look, he said it's fine. Let's just get it. He said, no, no, just let's wait. And we start walking down this dirt road. And the guys start gathering and start shouting and screaming and cursing. I mean, I probably can't say the stuff. Mm -hmm. I, no, I don't you, know. you, can, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Okay, but you know, who the fuck are you? You know, are you fucking media? Are you a fucking Jew? Are you? I mean, it just starts shouting. And they can't even really see me yet. You know, put your fucking hands up. And then they start bringing out weapons. And some of them are topless and they've got bruises on their body from, from earlier in the day. And they're drinking. I see lots of, you know, spear in one hand and weapons in the other hand. And, and this isn't like, I mean, I'm not really used to seeing that many weapons anyway, have, you know, coming from Europe. But 
this was stuff that I've seen like in battlefields. Like this wasn't handguns. These were massive machines. And finally get down there and they start getting in my face and start shouting. And what kind of a fucking Muslim are you? Are you a Shia? Are you a Sunni? And I start chuckling a little bit going, what does that have to do with anything? You know, and why is your fucking head not covered? What kind of a fucking Muslim are you? And I'm going, oh my goodness me. And, and I remember looking, glancing at my phone and because they've got my, my colleagues circled as well and shouting but, to but, him. But where are your Nazi friends at this point? Because at this point you've got, uh, you've got Nazi friends. Yeah, no, so he's gone. So okay. he, he I, I suddenly I can't see him. And he's frantically looking for whatever person had said it was okay for us to come because he kept going, you know, just be cool. It's, you know, so-and-so said it's fine. It's fine. And so he kind of disappears. And these guys are smoking, you know, blowing cigarette in my face. And, and you know, and just, just, it's, it was so frantic. And more and more of them were coming and just like getting in my face, like no space between us at all. Wow. And, and I remember glancing at my phone and it says no signal. Right, right. And at that point, I'm thinking, okay, they can put a bullet in my head and they can put me in the ground right here in the middle of nowhere and no one's going to find out. No one's going to know because then everything starts running through my head going, I haven't told my colleagues that I'm here. I haven't told my family, haven't told the TV channel, haven't told anybody that I'm actually here. So if something happens to me, the, they'll know I'm gone, but they're not going to ever, ever find me again. And finally, the, the guy, Brian Culpepper is his name, he came and he managed to negotiate our way out. So we were allowed to finally leave. Oh, so he didn't actually negotiate your staying there and filming and, and no, he wasn't able to breaking bread with those guys. Yeah. Okay. No, because it got so hysterical and, wow. and they were, I mean, they were cursing. I mean, it was, the people were very, very riled up. And so finally left. And my colleague is white. So it was just me who's not you know, like them. And I remember just, you know, immediately getting back to the motel and, and, and you know, writing my, my colleague, Joanne, and just saying to her, look, you know, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. Here's my mother's phone number. Here's my brother's phone number. You know, if you don't hear from me every couple of days, you just need to, you need to let them know. You know, but, but this was just one of many, many very unpleasant experiences. At another place, I went to a training camp where I was allowed to film part of it and then not another part. And I remember a guy sitting there uh, with, again, gun, everybody's drinking, everybody has guns out and he's, he's got his gun on his lap and he's holding it. And he's looking at me, just, just staring at me, not talking, just staring at me as I'm talking to other people. And then finally he says, you know, the, the, the best thing about serving in Iraq and serving in Afghanistan, he's a former soldier, he says, is uh, getting paid to shoot ragheads like you. I'm sitting there going, okay, that's, that's, that's great. That's, thank you. Wow. Okay. And just, you know, my way away from there. And it's, it was just horrifying. And some other guy following me around, you know, clearly on medication, also for a former soldier, kind of twitching and kind of glassy eyed. You know, I'm going to put a fucking bullet through your head. I'm going to put a fucking bullet through your camera. Don't fucking film me. And I'm going, oh my goodness, I'm not filming you. Stop huh. following me. Well, this is this is amazing to hear because this is virtually none of this comes through in your film. I mean, your your film is a, a far more hopeful document, and now I'm yeah. I'm beginning to worry that it's, <laughs> it's it's a document for another world because the main import of your film is you put a white supremacist in a room with Dia Khan, and there's no there, there's there's no way to maintain the white supremacy for very long under the the empathic 
insistence of you as an interviewer. No, but you saw that with, I mean, never mind these guys, but you also see it in the film with, with Richard Spencer yeah. and the Jerry Kinnon as well. Yeah, I was going to remark on that difference because so you have a few guys whose names escape me, but there's probably three guys who you, who you seem to spend a lot of time with and each falls under your sway to a degree that is frankly pretty adorable and they're effectively deprogrammed of their white supremacy in your presence based on questions you ask and I, mean, I gotta say the fact that you are you also happen to be a beautiful woman can't have been irrelevant the effect on the viewer is you, you i basically felt like i was watching three guys fall in love with you and encounter a level of cognitive dissonance with their worldview that was just completely unsustainable i don't know if you felt that yourself but it was just like i mean this you're at you're, you're when you get around to asking them so you mean to tell me you would want to deport me and you would think I should be stripped of my rights? And each one of them is saying, no, no, well, no. I mean, I, I mean, I, and it's amazing. I mean, it's, these are amazing encounters you've captured on film. They are. But you, you're, you did not have that effect on Richard Spencer and, and Jared Taylor, it seems. And mm -hmm. was that based on, on them or, the le or the, you had less access to them? Or how do you perceive the difference between those encounters? Well, well, the, the, the men that I just spoke about, the, these very kind of vicious encounters, the, the, some of the men, well, one of the men who in the film leaves, Brian Culpepper, he saw me being treated like this. And part of his reason for leaving was that he couldn't see me treated like this because he was starting to consider me to be a friend. And this was very, so I think he started seeing his movement in a different light when he's seeing it relate to his friend, somebody like me. Whereas beforehand, you know, this hadn't really occurred to him. It, it, it wasn't personal. It doesn't become personal. But when it comes to the Richard Spencers and the Jared Taylors of the world, I did not get to spend as much time with, with them. But also, I actually find them to be more, more sort of sinister in many ways. I, I you know, and, and, and also more dangerous. I mean, the, the, what surprised me most about making this film actually was was the very deep difference between sort of the working class guys, or you say blue collar, don't you, uh, guys, and, and these kind of this sort of suit and tie brigade of Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor and, and others like them. And, and I mean, I found the kind of camaraderie and the, the, the kind of love between these various groups really telling as well, because you see Richard Spencer treating his own followers with, with a lot of contempt and a lot of disrespect, which I think is interesting. Whereas, you know, Jeff and some of the Nazis that I spend time with, you know, they, for example, at Charlottesville, you know, they were, when, it, when the worst violence started happening, there were several cars that were brought up to one of the areas to pick up all the leaders of the different groups. And Richard Spencer, you know, was, was you know, escorted off into a car. And, and, and a lot of the other leaders. And Jeff was actually one of the only guys who said, no, I'm going, because their followers weren't able to fit into the cars. So Jeff said, I'm going to walk back. So he walked back through all the counter protests with the rest of his group because he didn't want to be separate in, in that way. So I think that was really telling. But, <clears throat> but excuse me, but your question is, why was my encounters with, with those guys different? I think because their aim is something different and their reason for being in the movement is something different. I think for, for the neo-Nazis that I spoke to, a lot of it is about emotions. And whereas for the 
Jared Taylor's and the Richard Spencer's, it's much more about ideology and it's much more about power. And I think it's also about wanting access to more power. Whereas for the other guys, it's it's just trying to regain some sense of dignity and, and some sense of purpose and meaning and belonging in all the, the, the words that we said earlier about the previous film. So I think it's harder to get through, you know, a lot of people who are deeply committed to an ideology, you know, they have a barrage of, of argumentative tactics and, and their worldview is something that's been built over a long period of time. And they've spent ages cherry picking arguments and, and, and reading biased materials, you know, to constantly reinforce their worldview and reaffirming uh, and refining their arguments against the other side. And I think Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor fit into that, whereas the other guys were able to sort of connect to my humanity and therefore also their own. Yeah, the difference is really striking. Just, you know, as a, a viewer, it's when you, your, your Nazi friends are warming up to you, it really, I mean, you know, adorable is not too strong a word. It was really, you know, the, the, those were, it was very cute to see you just kind of cut through their worldview. And the result is just super humanizing and you feel compassion for these guys. And then to see you walk into a room with Richard Spencer and he, he's got this kind of reptilian glare and he really is a sinister guy who, I mean, there's just, there's no warmth and his own egocentricity and cruelty are so obvious. I mean, the guy is just a colossal asshole. <laughs> you know, so, you know, as a viewer, you, you're sort of just, I just want you to get out of the room with him. You know, I just, I was uncomfortable having you in his company. But when you went into these situations, your technique as an interviewer is... It's really pretty interesting. Again, again, I'm 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 aware that there's so much happening off camera that I'm not seeing, but you're just really directly seeking to build an empathic connection with someone. You're not arguing with them. You're not trying to give a litany of reasons why they're wrong about anything. You're trying to understand them and then just juxtapose the rapport that's being built by that just basic human communication with the fact that they have a set of beliefs wherein you are branded as the, the other so irretrievably as to really suggest that they, they should want to murder you or have someone else murder you. And at a certain point, you just juxtapose those two facts. And in the cases of at least three of the guys, it proves totally untenable. How did you think about your approach to this, because really, you're, you really are just putting yourself on the line in a, in a very interesting way. I think you have to, or, or at least I feel like I had to, because, you know, I, I've, I've had experiences of racism most of my life. And, and you know, I, I, as a result, I've, I've been an anti-racist, anti-fascist campaigner most of my life as well. And I've done sort of everything that, that you would imagine. I've gone to, you know, anti-fascist protest. I've shouted at these guys. I have, you know, flipped them off. I have thrown stuff at them. I have, you know, I've done all of that. And none of that really did anything. You know, it's, it's the other thing that I was always told growing up, you know, is that just give it time and, and these movements will just disappear. And, and it's true, you know, they, they sort of, you know, reduce in size and, and, in, and in noise, and, but then they come back. You know, they never quite ever go away. And, and here we are today with, with sort of this resurgence again. 
And so I, I just got to a point where I realized I, again, that I'm, I'm done being afraid of people like this. And, and I, I need to try something that I've never done before, which is to sit down and to listen and to see if it's possible for us, you know, seeming, seemingly enemies. I mean, they're my enemy as much as I'm theirs in, in many ways. And to see if it's possible for us to build a human connection and, and to work, work with that and use that as a starting point, not using the ideology as a starting point. And that's very much the same with, with the jihadi side as well, is, you know, if it's possible for us to build human connections first, the ideology eventually falls apart for most people, because it's always about something else. It's always about other human needs that are not being met. And if you can acknowledge that, and if you can sort of sit through that together, and I think a sincerity and a real wish to listen and not condemning people, not, you know, it's very easy to condemn them, I have to say, both sides. It's very, very easy to condemn the jihadis and to condemn the, the white supremacists as well. And it's very, very satisfying, I have to say. It feels great to condemn them and to judge them, but it doesn't provide any answers and it doesn't provide any results. And, and I, I did not make the film with the hopes of changing anyone or changing anyone's mind or anything like that. I purely made the film to try and understand why people do the things that they do, why people believe the things that they believe, and to see if it's possible for us to sit across from each other just as human beings and use that as a starting point towards something, something else, just of greater understanding, perhaps. So the fact that, you know, some of them started using words like friend for me, the fact that we were able to, you know, build a real relationship with each other of, of friendship was absolutely shocking to me and, and confusing and, and, and something I never would have expected. If you would have said to me a year ago, that I'm going to become friends some of your best friends are Nazis. Like <laughs> My goodness, I, I, I would have, I would have laughed at you at first, and then secondly, I think I would have been offended that you would think that I would do that, you know. And 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 here we are, you know. And it's it's very very strange, but it does give me a lot of hope. And going back to the Richard Spencer and and that kind of dynamic, also, what's it, what the biggest difference between him and some of these guys is. I spoke to these guys alone. I spent a lot of time with them alone. Richard Spencer never was around me alone. Yeah, that, that could be a big difference. He always yeah. had his friends. He always had his, so, so, so that kind of dynamic of always wanting to sort of show yourself as this, this, you know, whatever, you know, tough guy is very different. And the same thing with the Nazis as well. All the, the difficult experiences that I had only happened when they're all in big groups. And the testosterone and the anger and the name calling and all of that is really intense and whipped up. Maybe your superpowers only come out when you're one on one. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're you're a superhero that has to get alone with her target. Exactly, that's my superpower. Yeah, <laughs> but it's nonetheless super. I mean, the the effect is really it's it it really is pretty mesmerizing to watch. I'm so touched by by them. I have to say, you know, and and Ken, one of the guys, you know, the, that's the guy who was, you know, throwing the anti-Semitic flyers out of his mm -hmm. his window. Right. You know, he called me because in the film he doesn't leave. He he uses the word friend for me, but he doesn't actually leave. But in, in and in the film, I also ask him. I said, okay, so you know, what does this mean? You know, now you know going forward, what is this going to mean? And he said, well, I think you know, this opens me up to you know maybe speaking to other people who are different to me. He actually stayed true to that. 
he actually he actually did do that and he ended up speaking to um, after i'd gone uh, we kept in touch and he was also i mean he was expelled from his university and i tried to help him with with some of that i think they were worried that he was going to you know shoot there or I, I don't know yeah he had that photo that he posted on facebook exactly. i think yeah exactly and and i tried actually i haven't really said this out loud before but but i tried reasoning with some of the, the you know people at his university some of the 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 professors to try and say that look i don't believe that he has it in him to do that and and somebody like him at the crucial point where he stands in his life right now the best place for him to be right now is in 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 the in a space where he can continue his education i think if you take that away from him then we do run a risk of of him you know going over the edge but he really needs to continue learning and needs to be in an in an environment of knowledge and and people and thinking and reading nevertheless they kicked him out and and i understand that as well but anyway he he there's a black pastor in his african american pastor in his apartment complex who he started talking to and then this pastor invited him to his congregation which is an all black congregation and then ken goes there talks about his past as a as a ku klux klan member and currently as a neo nazi and his views and all of this and the response to him was kindness and was compassion and and you know people apparently came up and hugged him after and said you know obviously we disagree with you and dislike you know what you stand for but it takes a lot of courage for you to come in here and say and and you know sort of speak in this way and to you know put yourself out there like that and that completely just unpicked everything for him mm. so he called wow. me a, uh, some months ago and said look dear i've completely left i've left the ideology i've left the groups I i've left everything and i'm so sorry and he said you know the hate was eating me from the inside and he said you know i, I want to try and and do better and and you know and it's it tells me that we can't really afford to give up on people you know people who seem I mean, like him i mean he has a massive swastika as you see in the film you know has a massive swastika tattooed on his chest and a clan tattoo utterly committed to to his cause and you know today he's he's left and in the film he says oh you know but i'm never going to break bread with a, with a jew yeah. and you know yeah. two or three weeks ago i heard that that's exactly what he's done oh wow nice and he's having his tattoo removed you know so it's so there is hope I'm not saying that you know let's hug a nazi and everything's going to be fine but but I what what I've learned is that I think you know no platforming these people and 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 completely just uh rejecting them I think feeds into their kind of story of victimhood and as if you know they are speaking some sort of forbidden truth and i think if anything we need to expose racism we need to challenge it and we need to we need to confront it rather than allowing it to just marinate in its own kind of madness you know and going back to the thing you were talking about you know interviewing technique i mean i don't think i really have an interviewing technique other than just i think empathy is very important yeah. to me yeah no it doesn't seem like a technique it just seems like a willingness to hold all of your judgment in a bands and make yeah. a connection with these people. Yeah. Yeah, because I think the 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 judgment and and the kind of feelings of self-righteousness for holding all the right opinions and having all the correct, you know, politics and all of, you know, all of that kind of stuff, I think is just counterproductive. I I think it's it it actually adds to the problem 
and 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 adds to people's radicalization rather than not and and you know in speaking with the jihadis who left and then also with former violent neo nazis in this movement in this film you know what struck me after the fact is that what interrupted people's kind of hatred and people's ideology is for someone who represents the other in their eyes to treat them with dignity and with respect and with some level of kindness. And that doesn't immediately change somebody, but that began the process of unraveling some of this in their minds. And and that was just as true for some of the jihadis as well. You know, for example, being treated by, you know, an American nurse, for example. You know, so so it's it's so somebody doesn't suddenly become you know no longer a jihadi, but but again, human connection and I think empathy. And I asked Jeff at the end of our five hours that was supposed to just have been one hour, I, I asked him, I said, Look, why are you sort of tolerating me? Why why are you wanting to continue this conversation? And he said, he said, I completely dislike what you say. I completely disagree with what you stand for and the world that you want to live in. And he said, and I'll actively fight against it. And he said, but I respect that you believe in something. And he said, I respect that you are sincerely an activist. And he said, so that I can actually relate to. He said, everything that you stand for, you know, is just kind of horrible to me, but I respect your sincerity. Well, I, if memory serves, you made more progress with him than that. Well, well, he is still the the, the head of the, the the Nazi Party, though. Really? But Wait, so maybe yeah. I have Jeff wrong. Is Jeff? Jeff is the guy who who was the first man that I spoke to, and who was saying that you know he's feeling burned out and and. Interesting. So he's he's still the head. He is. He is. But but, but I keep in touch with him still, wow. and you know I, I and he's seen the film. I asked you know asked him what he thinks of it. And his only response was he thinks it's too short, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but, but they all think that they've been, well, I don't know about Jared and, and Richard, but everybody else feels that they've been, you know, portrayed accurately because that's important to me. Even if I, even if I dislike what they stand for, I still need to pay them the, the respect of portraying them accurately. What do you make of Spencer and Taylor's protestations that they're not actually racist? Right, that they're. I mean, I don't know if they. I don't know if Spencer does that everywhere, but Taylor often tries to kind of split the difference here, where he's he's just talking about the the preservation of Western culture and and you know white culture, but he's not actually expressing any animus for anybody else. I, I noticed. I recall they tried to walk that line with you, or at least Taylor did. What do you make of that? I think. Well, you know, the, the, the term racist is, is such a, you know, it's such a big and problematic term, obviously. So, so I mean, it, which is interesting that even racists don't really want to own that term. You know, the Nazis are the same. If I asked the Nazis, when I, when I did ask them, you know, are you a racist? None of them said, yes, I'm a racist. They, they would all use, they, they all want to repackage and resell you their racism. And Jared and Spencer are included in that. So, so they're sort of rebranding their racism into saying it's race realism, it's white civil rights, it is, you know, it's this, you know, it's whatever. It's, it's uh, you know, I think Jeff, you know, one of the neo-Nazis said that, you know, we are doing, we want to do for white people what Martin Luther King Jr. did for black people, you know. So, so they're all trying to sort of co-opt 
anti-racist language, human rights language, and sort of adopting a lot of that for themselves, which I think is really interesting and clever and, and, and quite dangerous. So none of them admit to being racist, but they all are. You know, it's, they all want America to be a, not just a white country, but, but you know, Jared's whole thing is, is around, you know, kind of racist science where he's trying to, you know, promote a hierarchy of, of intelligence and IQ and that it's natural for us to discriminate against people of color because they, they have lower IQs, right? So I'm not a racist. In, in, in his mind, he thinks, I'm not a racist. I'm just, you know, speaking about the science here. And they all want to go back to when segregation was, was okay. So they're all looking for, for, for ways to justify their racism so that they don't have to be called a racist, but everything they do and promote and want for the future is racist. Well, sometimes they go over the line. I mean, so I just forgot his name, but one of them, in talking about Jews, that the one who will never break bread with a Jew who's now breaking bread with Jews said, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know I think all Jews should be exterminated and or all, all Jews and, and homosexuals should be exterminated. So they, they do, you'd get them to say some ex- extreme things. Yeah, they're more explicit. And I think, you know, the, 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 the sort of tactics of the Jared Taylors and the Richard Spencers is very much to tiptoe and dance around every, everything, but say enough to where their points are absolutely clear. And, and which is also why, you know, the kind of audiences and the kind of followers that they have absolutely, you know, do flock to them. And, you know, these are not guys who are talking about, you know, the complexities of diverse societies or the fact that, you know, it is difficult for us to live together in, in various ways. But the fact that, you know, we need to work our way through those challenges. These are guys who are very much trying to promote a way of sort of sanitizing racism for the purpose of racism and for us to be separate, not to work through our problems, but to become separate right. from each other. The special problem with people like Spencer, and I think it might even be more true of Jared Taylor, is that there is truth mingled in with his racism, right? So that it, because what's happened on the left is that, so you raise this issue of of IQ and and you know the biology of intelligence, and there are there are actually politically inconvenient data that you know have impeccable scientific bona fides at this point, right? And, it's, and more data is coming all the time. There's just no guarantee that everything we find out about biology or the effect of culture on people will align with our political sensitivities until the end of the world, right? And, and yet the left is proceeding, and this is something that I've stumbled into on my podcast, talking to people like Charles Murray and then fighting with people who called me a racist for having had Charles Murray on, on my podcast. What is truly toxic about someone like Taylor, it seems to me, is that when people of goodwill on the left completely vacate the space where we can have adult conversations about all that we don't yet know about, let's say, something like intelligence or inequality, I mean, just how, you know, what explains the totality of inequality we witness in our society? On the left, there's only one answer, you know, it's racism or it's sexism, depending on what you're talking about. Otherwise, there would be perfectly equal representation of everyone, everywhere, all the time, fully synced with their membership in the general population, right? So if, there, you know, if 13% of the American population is black, well then 13% of cardiologists have to be black, otherwise it's racism. 
there's just no way that's true, right? So the moment you want to have a grown-up discussion about all of the variables that may account for differences in, in representation in any area of life, the left basically starts calling you a racist. This is a, an excruciating problem in America under Trump at the moment, but this is also a problem in Western Europe. And into the space of lack of candor and recrimination steps someone like Jared Taylor, who is you know, often recommended to me as someone I really must talk to on my podcast. But five minutes of digging into him made me think, well, there's just no way I want to give this guy a platform on my podcast. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, I mean, uh, there are multiple, multiple problems, obviously, with, with Jared Taylor and, and others like him. But you know, the, I tried talking to him as well about, you know, any, I mean, there's no recognition whatsoever of the history of America, you know, the, 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 you know, the history of segregation and, and, and slavery and, and, and also socioeconomic and political disadvantages that, that, you know, various groups have, have experienced. I mean, there's just the utter unwillingness to factor anything like that in. But, you know, when it comes to extremist movements in general, there is always the reason they're successful is that they, they, they are able to capitalize on aspects of problems that we have in our societies and then exaggerating that and then adding all kinds of other rubbish on top of it in order to sell this ideology. I mean, when you, uh, when you speak to the, the, the working class racists, you know, some of their, the grievances that they speak about, the socioeconomic and also political issues that they talk about, there is some truth in it. You know, the, there is an underclass and 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 a and a population of very very poor people who are white in America that that do exist. But the problem that I have is that these grievances that they have, that whatever pain and suffering that the white working class people in America and elsewhere are experiencing, that is being hijacked and manipulated by the far right into their politics and into something very very ugly. Rather and, and because I tried talking to some of these guys as well, saying, look, I understand some of your issues, but you, where you're directing your anger and your frustration is completely wrong. You're directing it towards immigrants and, and people of color. You're directing it towards other disadvantaged groups rather than somebody like Trump. I mean, you have far less, you have far more in common with the immigrant man that you hate so much than you do with Trump. And they would go, oh, but we're white, but, but we're both white. And I said, it doesn't matter that you're both white. Your experience as a working class man is nothing like the, the experience of Donald Trump and the kind of life that he has. You know, so it's, it's really, really unfortunate. But I suppose, you know, this is nothing new where, where the pain and the, you know, legitimate pain and suffering of, of working class and poor people is, is manipulated and instrumentalized. By, by those in, a power to, in power to do so. And it's very unfortunate, but I do feel that, you know, we, I mean, I consider myself on the left politically, you know, that we on the left need to be engaging and re-engaging with this constituency of people. And if we don't, then the only people that we're leaving in, in the field to engage with, with working class people is the extreme right. And, and surely that's not a good idea at all, you know? 
And there are challenges of, of you know, diverse societies and multicultural. I mean, there, there are, prob- you know, the, there are difficulties there, but there, they are not difficulties that are impossible to overcome. We just have to have the political will and the personal will to want to make this work, want to make our diverse societies work. But people, I mean, diversity has just become such a, such a curse word now, you know, and which is really unfortunate because what's the alternative? Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I don't understand. I mean, sh- should we all, you know, get on boats and go back home where our, our parents and grandparents came from? I mean, is that really realistic? Is that going to happen? But that's what the Jared Taylors and all these people believe in, you know, and, and the Nazis believe in, that somehow that can become true and that somehow maybe there needs to be a race war so that they can purge, you know, all of us from, from white countries. Yeah, well, the one diversity we can't really afford to accommodate is a, a radical diversity around our core values. I mean, if your value is, well, we got to kill all the non-white people or, or shove them out of the country or drive them into the sea, or we have to wage jihad until everyone bows the knee, that's something that civil society can't accommodate. But the war of ideas has to be won on that front. And then the, the rest becomes a, you know, a crime problem or a foreign policy problem or then you need a, a state that is committed to human rights and secularism to defend your side of that argument. But short of that, clearly, we need to be more globalist and more cosmopolitan, not less. I agree. I agree. But, but, but you know, people who are losing out in that equation, we also need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that there are huge numbers of young men who are finding themselves lost and confused and and unable to keep up with the very, very fast changes that are happening in in our various societies. And and that's not to sort of excuse the way that they're lashing out, but it is to recognize that there's something there going on and that we're going to have to do something about it so that the violence that it produces doesn't continue. You know, and but but you know, the these guys also have a huge problem with the fact that not just minorities is not just their target. It's also women. I mean, you know, they're losing out on jobs and on opportunities they feel and, and on what they feel entitled to. You know, previously they were entitled to this. They felt that this, you know, these jobs belong to them. And now women are getting them and other people are getting them and they're really having to compete. And some of them are not managing to compete. So, so you know, we have to have some sort of compassion for that, but also, you know, need to support young men in, in just, I guess, coping with changes rather than inciting them to try and turn back the clock instead. You know, all the progress that we're making is good progress. It's positive progress. And, and it can be good for some of these guys who feel very angry about it as well. But, and I suppose, you know, I think men like you and, and, and other men who are kind of in the public space, I think can really help in that, in kind of reimagining sort of what, what a healthy masculinity can be now you don't have to be aggrieved and entitled and and kind of be petulant about the fact that you know you're having to share your toys you know you have to share opportunities the first thing i got to do is get together with all my fellow jews and replace these guys and then uh, <laughs> once we're yeah. done with that then we can model the appropriate masculinity well and 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 you know what the i mean do you know their whole thing you know cuz cuz they explain to me like the, this whole thing that they feel yeah, yeah. so they explain, explain it because this is a esoteric piece of 
conspiracy theory that seems to actually be widely spread in in the U.S. at least. Well, well, I mean, he, here too. I mean, you know, they believe that you know Jewish people that there that there is this conspiracy amongst the Jewish people to force white European and 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 America, European countries and America into a multicultural mess. They want the demographics to shift, which actually demographics are going to change in America, which is also part of the panic that a lot of these guys have. Which you know, I think in the next twenty twenty five years is no longer going to be majority white. So this is a plot constructed by Jewish people and and the reason that they're doing this. So they want women and minorities and people from all over the place just overrunning white people culturally, politically, in, in financially, in every way. And the reason that they're doing that is that it's sort of payback because of World War II and what happened. So this is, you know, Jewish people exerting their revenge on on everybody. All right. Well, part part of my revenge is being guaranteed good Indian food in every major city I go to. If I can, if I can figure out how to do that, I'll know the war is almost won. Exactly. Exactly. So you know, so so, but but you know, in all seriousness, I mean, some of these guys do think that this demographic shift that then was, you know, the these feelings of panic was substantially exaggerated by the fact that then there was a black president in America. So it, it sort of symbolizes them absolutely losing power now. You know, they, they believe that this is happening. And I, and I get a sense that they think that this is a last stand. And, and what's bad about, and, and that there is an inevitable race war that's coming. And what's bad about, the, you know, someone who feels this cornered is, is you know, the potential for violence and, and, or the potential for continued violence. Yeah. And what's, what's unique about America in particular, it's just how well armed everybody is. That's just a, a scary thing to think That's about. Terrifying. Yeah. So, what do you make of the, the you know rise of this movement? Because you know what I find quite striking is that they all, without any hesitation, feel emboldened by the election of Donald Trump and and by the behavior of Donald Trump and the kind of policies that he's he's wanting to suggest. So, so what do you think is going on? Well, I think it is. As it seems, you know, I don't know how widespread it is. I don't know if you had to actually number all the people who were committed racists or white supremacists or you know, truly sympathetic with that cause in the U.S., I, I, would be, I would just be guessing as to the number. But there's no question they're energized by what's happening on the right. And the right is being energized by this, to my eye, crazy swing into identity politics on the left. And my main fear now, you know, being a liberal who checks virtually every box of liberalism, my main fear is that on the left, we will manage to misplay this moment so badly politically that not only will we get four more years of Trump, but we will just more or less convince all of these people you're talking about that this is the the moment for a truly intolerant right-wing populism, because it is the only source of honesty on some crucial points. I mean, so, so for instance, you know, I mean, just take, take where we started, the fight I had with your friend Miriam about open borders. If the assertion is that any concern about immigration, you know, the desire to have a defensible national border the desire to know who's coming into your country and to be able to choose who comes into the country. If that is synonymous with racism, 
you've got a problem because most people want that, right? And there, there are good arguments, at least for in the in the year 2018, there are certainly good arguments for wanting that. Now, I'm I'm you know as I, I think I said to Miriam, and I've certainly said elsewhere on this podcast, I'm totally sensitive to the the ethical argument that that puts the very notion of having a national border into question, you know, because I mean, how can we justify these disparities in good luck where I was born where I was and given all of the opportunity I've been given and someone is being born at this moment in Syria and will have, you know, by dint of no fault of their own, very likely none of these opportunities. It's, it's completely unjustifiable morally, but the reality is, is that if you're going to call everyone who wants a defensible border a racist, you will be calling many people who are not motivated by racism racist, and they're growing less and less patient with this. And so I think a lot of the support for Trump is coming from people who just can't find a, a sensible person on the left when you talk about things like, in this case, immigration. There's no reason for that because you can have a nuanced discussion about all of these things and make and make all of the reasonable, compassionate, ethical points and still arrive somewhere that people can link up to from, you know, different points on the political spectrum. But the left, at least in in campaign mode in the US, is it seems not doing any of that and it's it's getting scarier and scarier. I feel like I mean the impression that I get is that most of the, the discourse around a lot of these questions, I think, is, is I feel like we're not being particularly open and honest. And I also feel like because, I mean, the thing that frustrates me a lot is, you know, for example, when it comes to talking about Muslims in America or, or, or even in, in, in Europe, you know, it's, it's, I feel like we still don't know each other very well, right? I, I feel like it's, the majority of Americans know very little about Muslim people. The majority of Brits even still know very little about Muslims. And it's, I think the fact that we are so, so behind on, on you know, going back to the films, on, on that kind of human connection level with each other, I think is a huge source of why these conversations are just running amok in completely unproductive ways. And it's, the sort of stories we tell about each other, I think, are very limiting and very stereotypical. I think the wide variety of, of Muslims or, or, or the life, what, what is it like to be an immigrant? What is it like to be a brown or a black person or a Muslim in the world today or, or over the course of the last 30, 40 years? Very few people actually have any kind of human connection with the other. And I think that's why these conversations are becoming really toxic and difficult and very impersonal. And, you know, and to me, that's one of the reasons I do what I do is, you know, I, I just hope that through filmmaking or through storytelling, we can try and create the possibility of, of, of empathy and of, of recognizing ourselves in the other, whoever the other is, and, and, and the other sort of being on both sides of this, even, even politically. Because I, it's, it's very easy to fear each other and to hate each other if we don't really know each other. And if the only thing that we know about each other is that Muslims are terrorists, Muslims are coming to blow us up, you know, Syrians are coming because they want to destroy America, then, you know, 
understandably, you know, the, the average American's reaction to any Muslim refugees is going to be very negative. And so it becomes easy for somebody like Trump to, to play the cards that he's playing politically because it's very easy to feed into that sort of fear. So, I mean, my, my kind of personal frustration is, is very much around that, is that we still are doing a terrible, terrible job at reflecting the real experiences of people, the real stories, the real complexity and the diversity that exists within minorities, you know, and, and you know, how do we do that? You know, how, how can we... How can we ensure that, you know, conversations about, for example, you know, people keep talking about the, you know, grooming gangs or this, that and the other. How can we ensure that, you know, a, a wider range of people get to speak about that? Why are we only allowing abusers and violent men to define what an entire group of people are? You know, Muslims, as we said earlier as well, I mean, there's 1.67 billion Muslims walking around this planet. You know, it's, it's if they were all what is presented in the stories that we know about Muslims, then, then you know, the world would be a really, really horrific place. Well, this is really where the left has failed so egregiously because it's, it's the left that has made any segmentation here of the, the Muslim community very difficult to do. I mean, so my, the first point I, I always make in talking about the problem of jihadism and, and Islamism is that the first victims of this are Muslim. I mean, we're talking about liberal Muslims and free thinkers and women and gays and I mean, people in the community. But also conservative, but also conservative, very, very pious people. Yeah, who are not Islamists or jihadists, yeah. Exactly, but people don't know the difference. Right. People hear Islamists and they think Islamist means Muslim, and that's just not the case. So even the definitions, people don't understand still. Yeah. Well, this is something that Majid has, has helped me with, and we, we collaborated on a book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, together. And you can sort of see him reformat some of that terminology for me in, in real time in that book. But yeah, it's clearly conversation with the other is something we need to get better and better at. And you are uh, one of the best I've seen. So bravo, Dia. It's really no, keep it up. Very cool. But but I, I just really think that we have we have to do better, because if we don't, I mean, with every single person that I sat with and talked to, you know, I completely defy their expectations and stereotypes of, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of what a Muslim woman is, you know, and and the fact that their their understanding of what a Muslim woman is is so 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 very narrow, you know, I kept asking them asking them, have you ever met a Muslim before? And they go, no. So then how can you have such strong feelings about Muslims? Well, because I, you know, how do you, how do you encounter people who are different from you? And the, and the only way that they're encountering people at this point or Muslims at this point is through the news and, and through the media. I mean, I, I know, I mean, the media doesn't need any more sticks, you know, used on them to, to beat them with at this point. But really, there is something there. I, I think that, you know, our media has not done a particularly good job. It's done a terrible job addressing extremists first and foremost, but it's also done a terrible job addressing just people. Just, you know, the, the, we never, I mean, I only, whenever I do an interview, for example, in Norway or whatever, the only kind of way people frame the work that I do or frame me as a person is somebody who gets death threats from uh, Muslim extremists. 
You know, so so the fact that our humanity is constantly flattened into this kind of stereotypical boxes is awful. And and imagine being a Muslim man. I mean, imagine if a Muslim man would have made this film. I mean, he probably, you know, would have gotten beaten up. I mean, if I narrowly escaped that, then imagine that. So the fact that the humanity of Muslim men has been, and, and of brown and black men at this point, have only been labeled with, you're either a gang member or you're a jihadi or you're this or you're that, is it's devastating that we're standing at such an elementary place when it comes to recognizing each other and, and knowing about each other. So, you know, we have to get better at, at reaching out somehow because politically it's not going to happen. And I think our, our political leaderships are very, very much showing that they are not interested in, in bridging any divides. If anything, they're going to, they're going to deepen the, the, the cracks between yeah. us. Yeah, well, politically it seems it's moving in the wrong direction, which is scary, yeah. But but how but how do we how what do you feel how do we address that how do we deal with this wave of of the extreme right and populism that is washing across everywhere? Well, um, to adopt the terminology of uh, my favorite jihadists, I've been f- focusing on the near enemy more than the far enemy. I mean, you know, being a liberal, being a scientist, being someone who's the, the first people I encounter are you know, intellectuals and journalists and people who should understand what's going on in the world. And these are the people who are, you know, you know, disproportionately liberal and reliably confused about many of these things in ways that just give immense energy to the counter-argument on the right. So most of my time is spent trying to have honest conversations with people who are you know, left of center about many of these fraught issues. And in my collaboration with Majid was useful there because you know, Majid is, to, to give you a sense of how bad this all is and how confused everyone is, so you, know, you might have noticed that Majid and Ayan Hirsi Ali were put on a, a list of anti-Muslim extremists by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Right, and Majid successfully sued them, I think won $3 million or something recently. So the Southern Poverty Law Center, which heretofore has been the gold standard for assessing just which groups are white supremacists in the U.S. and how scared we should all be of them, that organization branded Majid, a, a, a Muslim like yourself, who's just a reformer, you know, trying to depro- a former Muslim extremist, actually, who's now trying to deprogram extremists, they branded him as an anti-Muslim extremist. And, you know, I have landed on their hate watch page because I did a podcast with Charles Murray and then Ezra Klein of Vox Media, you know, attacked me for it. And the left can't follow the plot here. They don't understand that you can have a totally rational and compassionate and well-informed conversation about, you know, in this case, the specific link between ideas about martyrdom and paradise and this phenomenon we call jihadism, right? And, you know, it's not to say that it accounts for the phenomenon across the board for every person at all times, but there is a link between the actual doctrine of jihad, as you can find it in the Quran and the Hadith, and the behavior of the Islamic State. And it's a very direct link. And the the problem that the Muslim world has to grapple with is that the Islamic State is not a fringe cult. The Islamic State is not the Scientology of Islam. 
it is offering an all too plausible version of Islam that we have to figure out how to render less and less plausible and less and less contagious. But I think that's already naturally happening. Yeah. I, I think that, that rendering of, of, of the faith has, has been there on and off for, for you know, a thousand years. Time. Yeah. And, well, but it's also, well, but, but it's been exaggerated tremendously in the last 40 years with the petrol dollars of Saudi Arabia actively been trying to promote this particular brand. But I think that, you know, the, the counter to that is, is, which is what I was saying at the very beginning as well, is, is I don't believe, believe that, you know, there's a movement needed for reform or anything like that. I think that is naturally already happening and has naturally always been there. I think there is always conflicts between the, the kind of conservative, liberal and secular and, and, and kind of fanatic strands of, of kind of every faith. And those frictions, I think, are, are healthy and have been there for a really long time across religions and is also very much present within the, you know, quote unquote, you know, Islamic world or various Muslim communities. And I think if Muslims can just be sort of left to, to grapple with that in, in the way that they naturally are without kind of external forces, I think, sort of making it even worse in some ways. I think that's that's the way to go. And and you know, for example, there's a lot of women, as you know, that that you know are doing a lot of work within the various communities. And there's also a lot of young men who never get the light of day. You know, Majid I know is a favorite of of you know of of a lot of kind of news outlets and things like that. But you know, Majid is not the only man, Muslim man that exists. No. There are obviously millions and millions of guys who have a lot to say and who also differ from Majid on his politics in many ways. But, but who are never given a platform to speak. And, and so that you know, goes back to this thing of kind of flattening the experience of what it means to be a Muslim and kind of rather than allowing the complexity, rather than allowing the, the, the true diversity that already exists for Western people, <laughs> I'm sitting here making quotes um, with my fingers, you know, rather than allowing Western people to really experience that pluralism that actually exists, I, I think, you know, we're still stuck in, in, you know, does Ayan represent this group of people? Does Majid speak for this group of people? Or, you know, it's, they don't, they no. speak for themselves, yeah. just like, you know, millions of Muslims should get the opportunity to speak for themselves, but they don't get to, you know, and, and for a lot of Muslim women like me, what we really struggle with and what I really struggle with is I find myself constantly stuck between, you know, rock and a hard place. You know, I, I have, you know, I, I'm critical of, of, you know, certain types of crimes and, and violence taking place against women within our communities. You know, my first film was about, you know, so-called honor killings. And I get a lot of crap from, from my fellow Muslims for doing that. And then I also, you know, take on fascists and racism and, and, and also, you know, problematic foreign policies that I see that America and, 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 and you know, Britain conducts in, in various parts of the world. And I get a lot of crap and a lot of death threats and, and problems for, from, you know, that's from, from Islamophobes and people like that. And it's, and it's a really, really difficult place to be. And then the only people that are sort of marched to the front line to sort of speak about all of these topics is like two or three people, you know? So, 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 I mean, that's not your fault. Well, well, in part it's my fault because insofar as I have a 
platform, I, you know, I, I choose who I can talk to, and, I, and I've, I've put a lot of energy into promoting Majid and Ayan and collaborated with them in various ways. And, and they're not representative of, of, of the vast majority, even of liberal and secular yeah, Muslims. Yeah. They're, they're just not, and that's perfectly I mean, the, the, the bright line for me, what I really demand of myself and everyone in this space is honesty. Right, and so, and and the what's happened on the left, and this is really just a more often than not, this happens, is it has become taboo to talk about Islam as though there were any actual touch point in the religion that explained the character of jihadist violence. You know, you know, you, you, what you get from the the kind of propagandists of the left, and there, you know, there are many Islamists and closeted Islamists who cynically exploit this. I mean, the, the organizations like the Council of American Islamic Relations and, you know, there, there are, you know, hijabis who give TED Talks who, who in a you know, fairly sinister way, I mean, these are Richard Spencer-like characters, at least in my view. But again, these are Richard Spencer-like characters who are giving TED Talks. Well, he, he is on the front cover of a lot of, I mean, he, he still gets more press than I think, you know, like. No, but, but, I'm, but I'm saying these people are lionized on the left as benign representatives of a peaceful faith, and yet they're, they're none too closeted theocrats. I mean, somebody like Linda Sarsour, who becomes, you know, one of the three organizers of the Women's March in the U.S. and, and gets, you know, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, tweets, I stand with Linda, and, you know, Sarah Silverman, the comic who I love. You know, tweets. I I stand with Linda, but Linda, you know, to my eye, is a thoroughly dishonest bully who just lies about Islamist theology. You know, when in front of liberal audiences, and then browbeats them. You know, with their, you know, white guilt, and plays intersectional politics and the the Islamophobia card as a way of not having an honest conversation about jihadism or Islamism or the treatment of women under Islam in many cases. I'm I'm not that familiar with her work, but but I think you know a lot of people would say, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people would have similar ways of describing Ayan as well. Is that Ayan is you know playing into the other end of the spectrum by only focusing on you know certain aspects of it. So I, I guess yeah, but I, I can tell you just you know, knowing Ayan very well and knowing what her experience was like. I mean, there you have just a colossal kind of human rights failure of the left and of, you know, feminists on the left to recognize that, you know, in her hour of need, Ayan should have been given an appointment in a, a liberal think tank, and only conservative think tanks would take a meeting with her, really, because it was just considered radioactive on the left to draw any connection between Islam and intolerance. I mean, they just, there's, I think the part of the problem about you know, what we're talking about, or, or how I see it anyway, is that I don't think, I don't get the impression that the left is hostile to, to acknowledging that, that, you know, these people are, are, are very clearly, you know, ISIS is very clearly saying, you know, this is what we believe and, and we are taking this, you know, out. out. Did you see me with Ben Affleck on, on Bill Maher's show? No. No, oh, no, you've missed that? Okay, well, there have been many moments where it just has... No, but I think you only make it about that. I think that's where the problem is. I, I think, you know, so, so, and similarly, you know, if, because if, 
this is why, you know, when I was describing the jihad film as well, you know, people, when they, they were asking me, what are you going to do? What are you going to find out? People would say, find out if it's just about religion or it's just about foreign policy, because those are typically the two camps. You know, one camp would say if it wasn't for American foreign policy, if it wasn't right. for what's going on with Palestinian people, if it wasn't for, you know, all these various things, jihadis would not be getting up and doing what they're doing. The other side will say it's only down to Islam. It's only because they're Muslims and they're following the the scripture that that they are jihadis. And the the reality is is that there's having met these people, there is no either or. It's not that someone is driven only by this or only by that. It is it is a mixture of things. You know, I mean, people are co- are complex. People's motivations are complicated and also fluid and shifting. And and I think not acknowledging the complexity, I think, is what the problem is. I think only kind of obsessing over it's just because of Islam or it's just because of this or that. I think that's where the problem comes in. And I think that's what I find is when people shut down and stop listening. So I think, you know, for me, I'm constantly trying to think of how do we continue the conversation? How can we continue to make it possible for people to hear, hear difficult things and to engage with difficult things without feeling like you're stabbing them in the heart or that you're you're completely stomping on something that is absolutely dear and precious to them and what i find is you know complexity is key we constantly have to acknowledge the complexity and i think you know that's why i think you know people like ayan i think that's why so many i mean i i have a lot of problems with a lot of the things that she says but i also recognize that some of what she says is 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 true and necessary for someone to articulate but there are other women who are saying it but who aren't only obsessing over islam that they're able to hold a bigger picture in their mind and in their hands as they address jihadis as they address you know the bombs that are raining down on their heads you know made made by the usa you know it's possible to hold all of this in place and also dealing with emotional trauma and all of these other things that that I am more interested in kind of the human drivers of why somebody does the things that they yeah. do. It's super complex until it isn't. I mean, that this is my view of it is that, you know, I, I take every point you just made and clearly, I mean, in either of these contexts, whether it's the jihadist one or the white supremacist one, you can find people who are motivated by a very different mix of internal and external causes. But yet, and yet it is also true to say that you can find the pure case in any context as well. So you can find people who, for instance, have not been victimized by anything or anyone. They just get committed to some ideology that they think is true, and they follow its dictates logically, and they come out the other end of it, you know, a sociopath, essentially, committed to a, a truly abhorrent cause. And Yeah, but those guys are, are in a minority. It's usually all these other, the, this, this kind of messy sure. mixture that is usually yeah. the truth. And even because I've had people say to me when I did the jihad film, they were saying, well, you know, look at so-and-so. I, I know I can't remember some of the, the guys that went from the UK, but, you know, he's a doctor or he's an engineer. You know, he's got everything going for him. He doesn't, you know, he's not socioeconomically deprived. He's not this, he's not that. But when you really start looking closer, there are always other things going on. Yes, there are sociopaths, you know, the, the, they do exist, but they are absolutely in a minority. No, no, I, I wasn't saying, yeah, I mean, there are sociopaths, but no, I was talking about psychologically normal people who get committed to 
what is in effect a, a recipe for sociopathy. But these are not psychologically unhealthy people necessarily. The disparity here, and I now I'm getting sensitive for your time, Dia. So I just want to. No, no, this is very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the disparity. So, I mean, you and I are playing, generally speaking, fairly different games here. And, and as I hope is clear, I have immense admiration for the game you're playing and how you're playing it. But the situation I'm in often with respect to talking about Islam and Islamism and jihadism and, you know, all of the gradations of religious certainty here and how they play out in the world and, and how they interact with these other complex variables like foreign policy and, and all the rest. I keep meeting people who, who are so in denial about the power of ideas and so and who think that I mean literally I I can I've met anthropologists who deny that anyone has ever ever blown himself up with the expectation of paradise no one believes in paradise I can introduce you to anthropologists who believe this I meet them at conferences and I wind up debating them and it's at a certain point the conversation breaks down because they they just they don't believe that anyone believes in anything and they think the the drivers of human behavior are always economic entirely religion is always used as a pretext and then you can find islamists none too closeted islamists who will link up with that species of secular doubt and in a very calculated way use it against the left to manipulate it and to brand anyone like me who would have any concern about Islam as an Islamophobe. And it's, it's a very toxic kind of denial. And it's, it's every bit as crazy making as if, you know, if I were talking about the problem of white nationalism and, and you know, looking at the behavior of groups like the KKK and, and you know, others that you've just embedded with, and I, and I was just going to diagnose the problem, at least at, at the level of ideas, to be one of racism and white supremacy. You know, these people are telling us that they hate black people. They're telling us that they hate Jews. They're telling us they don't want to live with them. They're telling us that they think white people are superior to black people. Imagine how insane it would be if there were a virtual consensus on the left, which suggested that, no, no, they're not racist, that it has nothing to do with race. It's only, it's economics, only economics, yeah. right? And then, I, then when you find a rich racist, like, you know, you know, let's say Richard Spencer or even somebody worse, right? You find someone who has got none of the economic variables and yet he's just talking about mud people, you know, on Facebook, you know, every minute of the day. Explain that. Well, there is no explanation apart from the person's actual racism. And yet you get just pure denial. And, and, and that's, that's the situation with respect to Islam. And it's... When you're fighting from that particular trench, it's natural to focus on the power of ideas because they, they are immensely powerful within that context. I mean, I suppose the concern that I have is, is that, that you know, you're, you're in a very good position in terms of, you know, you have a lot of people who listen to you and, and you also have, you know, the, 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 the good fortune to, to get to engage in, in, in a lot of these conversations and to think out you know, various complexities and, and, and concepts and, and, and to debate them with, with, you know, people that you want to talk to. The, the, the concern I have is that the, the real life effects on real people of, of exercises like that 
can be really, really difficult. And and I and I don't want to necessarily defend the the left on 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 some of this because I, I agree with you on on a lot of what you're saying. I think the left has been sort of impotent on a lot of very very important topics. You know, I, I remember when I was you know doing the film about honor killings. You know, a, a really well intentioned, very very dear friend of mine. She's a human rights lawyer, a, a white woman in in England. I've done some really important work. And I remember talking to her about this case, about this young woman who was killed on the orders of her, her family in, in South London and had gone to the police five times and, and nobody really believed her. And she subsequently ended up strangled and raped and, and buried six feet under in a suitcase in, in Birmingham. And when I was talking to this friend of mine, you know, she was going, oh, you know, I just, I just, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not a racist. And I was going, okay. And, and she's going, oh, you know, so I, I just, you know, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I should talk about these things or stories like this because, you know, I'm not a racist. And I was, and I looked at her with just horror and I said, look, I feel what you've just said is actually racist because what you just told me is that the life of a woman who looks like me or looked like this young woman, Banaz, doesn't really matter and doesn't really deserve your concern and your outrage because you don't want to be labeled the racist. And, and that's just unacceptable. That's actually the definition of racist, that a woman of color, actually, her rights and her protections really don't matter to you. Yeah. And this is a point that Majid makes a lot. Right. But, 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 but the concern that I have is that, you know, by, by the, the conversation becoming so fixated about Muslims and jihadis and Islam and Islamism and all these terms and terminologies kind of, you know, being used back to back and, 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 you know, and I understand that, you know, your audience is, is more sophisticated and, and probably understands the difference. But the fact is huge. The, I, I would say the vast majority of Brits and Americans and, and other Europeans, they don't have any personal contact or understanding of Muslims. And so if most of the public discourse or most of the discourse that they hear is about Islam and the connections between that and jihad and all, all this kind of stuff, then the impact of that on real Muslims, on, you know, on everyday people, on people like me, on, on, on my family and, and my friends is devastating because all we are considered to be is, is some sort of problematic monster, some sort of problem child who constantly has to be talked about, constantly has to be unpicked. I, I also run a, a, a an online magazine called Sisterhood, which, which I set up to reflect the, the vast diversity that exists amongst Muslim women all around the world, because I was so sick and tired and so frustrated by the fact that as Muslim women, we are constantly talked about, we're constantly talked for and talked at, but we rarely get to be at the center of the conversations that affect us the most. And, and and again, this comes back to people's humanity. I feel like our humanity is constantly reduced and, and, and made into a problem all the time. People's obsession with the burqa, people's obsession with the hijab, people's obsession with Muslim women's bodies and choices and clothing is, is just, it's tiring. And, and, and similarly, you know, people's utter obsession with Islam, 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 Muslim, Muslim, Muslim. I understand that we have a huge problem on our hands when it comes to the radicalization of our, our kids. But we're working on it. People are working on it. We just never get the microphone. And because we don't, you only have Majid and, and Ayan and a handful of other people speaking on these topics. It gives a very skewed and a very limited and narrow 
impression to people, white people, Western people, European and Americans who have no understanding of, of Muslims. So, so I think part of the reason we're seeing the rise of these white supremacists who are all uni unified, I mean, they all differ on do we like Jewish people, do we not like Jewish people, like they all have their kind of, you know, differences between the various groups and even the various countries. But the one thing they are unanimously aligned on is their hatred for Muslims. So what I'm worried about is that if we only have a kind of very narrow conversation a kind of a flattened conversation where, where people's humanity is sort of left. I, I understand, you know, the, 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 you know, the, we're in the battle of ideas and all of that, but ideas and the conversations about those ideas end up having, having real consequences in people's oh, yeah, real lives. Yeah. And we can't divorce the two. And, and you are in a position because you have such a tremendous audience to, to hopefully you know, show that the conversation can be broader than that and, and that, you know, and that the humanity of Muslims doesn't get just wiped away in, in the process of trying to understand jihadis. I mean, jihad and jihadis are not everything. No doubt, you know? no doubt. And now we've got the, this other monster that's kind of co-radicalized in a way. But the point is, and this is, this is the, the point you made, and, and, you know, as I said, Majid makes a lot, but was lost on your human rights lawyer friend is that that the concern about racism here I mean first of all Islam is a set of ideas and Muslims are not a race right you can be any race and you can be Muslim but the majority but the majority of Muslims are you know tend to be brown or right. black yeah, sure but it's it's still it's the race is the wrong lens through which to look at this because you know I could convert to Islam right now and it, you know it's it, it's there's nothing incoherent about that and but to to conflate any criticism of ideas or of culture or of certain behaviors within a religious culture with racism is to abandon to the starkest mistreatment the most vulnerable people in the Muslim community. In this case, you know, a girl who gets killed based on this, this you know, notion of pseudo-honor. But similarly, you know, it's, it's what I guess what I'm trying to say is that just like this young woman, Banaz, is, you know, nobody takes any ownership to, to what happened to her. Similarly, if, if the conversation continues being skewed in the other direction, then, you know, the, the, the anti-Muslim crimes that you're seeing rising everywhere also continue to happen. And, and those people's humanity also doesn't factor into any conversations that are being had. So, so in a way, we're kind of doing the same on both ends of the spectrum, which has to end, you know, because again, the collateral damage is, is starting to become just, you know, just everyday people, people who are just trying to live their life and are trying to raise their children and, and make ends meet and trying to keep their head down because they don't want to be targeted. You know, so, so as much as I want to liberate my friend, and I did say to her, I said, look, I hereby tell you <laughs> that you are not a racist for caring about somebody's life and caring about, you know, promoting somebody's human rights and, and, and ensuring that, that her dignity and, and safety is, 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 at the top of the priority list. But similarly, we have to ensure, I mean, look at the film that I just made, you know, the, the neo-Nazi film that I just made. Their view, and softer people than that as well, their view of somebody like me is that I don't deserve to live. You know, I, I, so, so, so it's happening on both ends of the spectrum and we have to be mindful of that. And I think we have to be more responsible with how we now use the, the public platforms that yeah. we have 
it's an interesting point you're making. You perceive it to be a, a kind of tightrope walk in a way that perhaps it is, but I'm just reluctant to view it that way. I mean, for, so for instance, you are a Muslim woman, and you know, you and I haven't met. We've just met by by phone, essentially, and you're already one of my favorite people on earth. So, <laughs> you're very and yet I am. I don't know if you've encountered it in preparing for this conversation or not, but on any short list of well-known, quote, Islamophobes, I tend to show up, right? Because I'm somebody who spent a lot of time talking about the problem of jihadism. So what I'm hoping to model here is the palpable fact that I have zero bigotry in reality and that, you know, my concern about the ideas within a Salafi reading of Islam and certain behavior has absolutely nothing to do with xenophobia or a concern about people's skin color or anything else that may actually be going on in the head of somebody like Richard Spencer. And yet the solution isn't to fall into the, the ditch that we see so full on the left, which is to make it more and more difficult to have an honest conversation about these things. I think we need to find... You are having a conversation, though. I mean, no one's preventing you from having that. No, no, no. If you do the math on the conversation we're having, right, and, you know, you, know, you, you and I agree about many things, and, you know, I think we're probably finding points where we disagree here, and insofar as there's daylight between you and somebody like Ayan and Manjid, you know, that would be fascinating to explore further in another conversation. But one thing that should be absolutely clear is that neither of us is motivated by bigotry in this conversation, right? And yet that is, even that <laughs> constitutes a major moral and political gain in the context of politics at this moment in the West. But I, th I think the, the reason why people cast you under the, the umbrella of an Islamophobe, I think is because of your, your you know, very particular focus and particular interest in in Muslims and and Islam and I think well because I just saw I mean first of all no one else was doing the job it, like when I started this you know I mean I started this on, See, that's the thing is people are but they don't get to talk about it when I first started touching this topic this was no exaggeration, probably on September 13th, 2001, I mean, in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, I began writing about this and thinking about this. And, you know, there was just, in terms of finding honest, an honest diagnosis of the problem, it was a wasteland, right? You know, I, I didn't meet Majid for many, many years. And I was, what I was, I kept getting thrust into conversation with people like Reza Aslan. And I don't know if you have any relationship to him, but he is a relentlessly dishonest person on this topic. And, you know, just will, you know, demonize any white guy who's at all worried about Islam as a racist. And th that works so well in front of an audience with a sufficient level of white guilt that it, it has become this, this kind of toxic holding pattern on the left around this issue. And then, then it does, in, at least in part, explain the, the rise of Trump. Because, I mean, you have someone like Hillary Clinton who, in the immediate aftermath of the Orlando shooting, which at that point had been the biggest shooting in, in American history, 
It has since been superseded. But even when it was clear that this had been a jihadist atrocity, she refused to talk about it. And all she said was, don't give in to racism, right? She just, she just admonished people not to be racist and denied any link between what Omar Mateen had done and his religious beliefs, well past the point where it was just obvious to everyone that there was a link. And that is so crazy-making. And it's so crazy-making even to Muslims. I mean, you know, I know Muslims who voted for Trump, right? I mean, not many of them, just, just one. You probably know her. But we have to be honest. And that's the crucial, that's the master variable on all of these topics. I, I agree. But I think we also have to be honest about the fact that obsessing over, because, because lots of people acknowledge that, I mean, that these are Muslim extremists. I mean, lots of people, I, I don't know what the obsession in the U.S. was of radical Islam, whatever the exact term that somebody wanted to use. Is. But crucially, crucially, the, the only option other than Trump for the presidency in 2016 was not being candid about this. And that was, that was a, just a, a spectacular own goal that she never had to score. I mean, I, at one point I was so desperate about this, I got on my blog and I wrote a section of a speech for her and just publicized it you know, as much as I could saying, this is what you should say about the, the Orlando shooting. I don't feel, I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but I, I don't, I don't see it. I don't feel like there is that much of a denial. I mean, I think it's quite obvious in, in many ways. I mean, the, the concern that I have though, is that by, by just overly obsessing over it. There's been a lot of progress. The thing that has made progress that has forced the progress was the Islamic State. You know, I mean, the Islamic State was so horrible, and, and obviously it still exists to some degree, but it became so salient and undeniable. And the, you know, just the, the way in which they just made their motives explicit, I mean, in, in their, you know, their magazine, Dabiq, and the layers of liberal leftist pretense in the face of this just kept getting scoured away. And it's, it's not to say you can't find, you still find people who are completely deluded about this, but things changed in the last few years, at least, you know, in the circles I run in. And I don't run into the, the Reza Aslans of the world much anymore. But how, how, how do we, how do you think we can deal with the fact that this over focus, this hyper, hyper focus on Muslims and Islam is, has a direct link now to, you know, the number of anti-Muslim hate groups in, in America. I mean, I think it's tripled uh, in, in 2016, I think. You know, the number of attacks on Muslims in, in America, I think I read somewhere that it's, it's like a third higher or something like that than it was in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Except, I mean, one, one problem here again is, and this, this is just, this will be a matter of the, kind of the different emphases that you and I strike here, but you have to be a somewhat skeptical consumer of some of these data. I mean, for instance, CARE, again, is to my eye a thoroughly compromised organization, as is the Southern Poverty Law Center now. I mean, these are ideologically committed, dishonest bureaucracies. And so let's, let's remove even them. All of these data about hate crimes, in any list you're going to see, anti-Semitic hate crimes virtually always top 
It's much higher. Anti-Muslim yeah. hate crimes by a factor of, you know, five. That's true in the UK too, I think, yeah. actually. Yeah. And as a Jew, I can say that this is inconvenient to say a week after the largest synagogue massacre in, in American history just occurred, but anti-Semitic hate crime has not been a major feature of the American experience for a very long time. It's not a problem that requires or has required all that much focus. I mean, that, this, again, this could be in the process of changing, but you can exaggerate the size of, of even that problem. No, I, I understand that. Let's let's even put the, the data aside. I, I can tell you from my own personal experiences, the way that I get treated as soon as somebody finds out that I'm a Muslim has drastically changed. I mean, it changed from 9-11. From 9-11, all of our lives w w were changed. And, and since then, anytime there's a terrorist attack committed by a Muslim extremist, the the lives of the rest of Muslims just just become awful. I'm I'm from Norway, as we said at the very beginning of of, of the conversation. I remember when Anish Breivik, the Norwegian terrorist, basically when he committed the crime in Norway. I remember you know watching on CNN and everywhere and just 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 praying and hoping and just wishing that it's not a Muslim because if it is, attacks against people like me will go up. So, I mean, I think data aside people's experiences, day-to-day -day experiences of anti-Muslim and Islamophobic hatred has absolutely skyrocketed. And, and especially now with Trump and the travel ban and, and everything that he sort of spews. So I, I guess my sensitivity lies in how do we, because I, I agree with you, I think any religion should be open for criticism any group of people or any, any sets of behaviors should be open for criticism or questioning, regardless of what they are, whatever the faith is, whatever the group and whatever the ideas are. But I think we have to also be aware of the fact that if, again, if a population knows very little about a group of people and the diversity that exists in, within that group of people, then you know, like your experiences, what you're saying, that it was like a wasteland. It was like this until you met Majid and until you met Ayan. I mean, that, that again sort of confirms and speaks to the utter lack of knowledge and, and, and connection that exists in America to people from Muslim backgrounds, other than like a handful of people that seem to be like on, on repeat sort of speed dial, I think, everywhere. What I meant by wasteland in that context was not that I had no understanding of Islam or, or no connection to, to Muslims, but that there was no honest conversation about the link between specific ideas and, and specific acts of, of violence. And the jihadism as a, as a problem was not being honestly discussed on the left. On the right, it was, but then on the right, it was gaining energy from all of these other kinds of bias that, you know, as you, you know, would expect one would want to have nothing to do with. So the most toxic situation that, to be avoided at all cost is to have a real problem, right, which is, could be easily understood by people of goodwill, but because of the taboos around talking about it, the only person left making sense about that problem is somebody like Richard Spencer or Jared Taylor, right? That is, that's a situation to be avoided at all costs. And that's what I'm also saying, that we need to avoid that. But I, I don't know how we ensure 
that a, a wider variety of stories are told about Muslims and that a wider range of, of voices get to the microphone. You're doing it. I mean, like, you know, the, this conversation is an, is an example and people will see your films and the knowledge that you are, you're a Muslim, you're not an apostate, you're not somebody, you're not Ayan, you have a, you have a very different lane you're traveling in here and you are awesome. There are so many of you. No, no, and thank you. You're very sweet. But it's, you know, but what I guess I'm saying is I'm not special. I guess what I'm saying is that there are loads and loads and loads and loads of people like me, but, but we usually don't get, and, and men who, 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 you know, Muslim men in particular, who are never, ever given a microphone unless they're like the, the, the you know, douchebag, what's his name, Anjum <laughs> Chaudhry from, yeah. from, you know, the UK. Right who's like constantly on, on, on Fox News and constantly put everywhere, you know, so you're, you're I just, I, I think we're, we're headed towards something very, very dangerous. And if we don't allow more people to, to be heard and, and to get to express their views, you shouldn't have to just be an apostate to get a seat at the table. You shouldn't have to be a former extremist to get a seat at the table. When, when these issues affect all of us, I think we need a wider range of voices appearing at the table. And, and I feel, I'm just sort of thinking out loud listening to you. I feel like, because we're talking about the left and the right a lot, and I'm starting to feel that sort of the collateral damage of this left-right tug that's going on right now of, well, the left isn't you know, doing this enough. It's not really acknowledging that, you know, Muslims are involved in, you know, Muslim extremism and, and in jihadism. And then the right is doing what the right is doing, I feel like maybe the collateral damage is Muslims because either way we lose. Either way we lose because the, the, the stereotypes about us increase, the obsession over us continues and the, 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 the distrust and the fear and the hatred against us and, and ultimately now also more and more violence against us is increasing. Like, you know, I, it's, it's so hard for me to travel to America. I, I'm coming to do film soon. And it's just, you know, my, my brother worries when he goes to immigration. I mean, it's just, you just, the, the, the climate is becoming really, really toxic. And I think I, I, you know, this, I don't disagree with the fact that, you know, we should be able to say whatever we want to say, and we should be able to criticize, uh, you know, jihadis and all of this and white supremacists. It's, it's why I do it. But we must not lose sight of the fact that Brian Culpepper and Ken in this film, the only thing that they know, and Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor, the only thing that they and the vast majority of Americans know about Muslims is just bad things. It's just that it's Islamic terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism. That's all they know. So what does that do to your average Muslim? What does it do to your average kid? If anything, it pushes more and more young people into the arms of groups like ISIS because you're constantly feeling like you're the other. You're constantly feeling like you're not good enough. You're constantly feeling like you're doing cartwheels to show people, look, I'm not dangerous. I'm, I'm not this. I'm not that. And, and still there is suspicion. Still there is these deepening fears and hatreds and the us and them there. Do you, does it, am I making sense? Yeah, you know, I, I hear it. I guess, I mean, the solution for me is pretty simple. I think I, this is a point you made in passing probably an hour ago, but I agree with you that this can't be done 
from the outside. It's not for non-Muslims, you know, atheist critics of all religion and, and Islam in particular to reform Islam or to spread the value of, of secularism in the Muslim community. Muslims have to do this themselves. And but also it already exists, Sam. That I think that's what I love. But it doesn't exist enough. It doesn't like when you run a poll in the UK and ask British-born Muslims what they think about homosexuality, and you get zero percent finding it morally acceptable. You've got a problem on your hands, especially if you're gay. And that's just that. This has to change. I mean, we, Islam has to undergo a full collision with modernity and with secular values and with scientific thinking in a way that Christianity has been doing it for 200 years. And, you know, Christianity is still a mess, right? And you can still find completely crazy Christians who are waiting for Jesus to come back and usher in the end of the world. But it's not as bad as it was in the 14th century. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I have seen some of the same polls that you're talking about as well, which are very, very worrying. But I, I'm fairly confident uh, when I say that I think I have encountered more Muslims than most of these polls have. And, and I, I, I promise you, Sam, the, the things that you're wishing and hoping, they, they do exist. Well, well I, know, I know they exist. I mean, there's no question, but the people, the, the, the free thinkers and the liberals within every Muslim community need a massive amount of support from within and without. And my feeling but, is but that... But it makes it feel like they're the exception. And what I'm saying that they're not the exception. It's, it's actually the, the, the crazies that are the exception. On any given question, yeah. there's, you know, for, forcing women to wear the hijab is not exceptional in the Muslim world. It is more common than not in the Muslim world, I would guess. I mean, at least it's got to be half the Muslim world. Right now. Yeah. Yeah, but right now. It's, it's because we also can't leave out, you know, the, the last 40 years and, and kind of, you know, the Saudi Arabia's sort of steroid drive to, to, to you know, promote their Wahhabi brand of, of, of what Islam actually is. You know, bef before that and even still, you know, the, the, the pluralism that exists and, and the various ways of manifesting and expressing your religiosity is vast and, and, and quite wonderful in, in very many countries. But if the only thing we see in the West is how the, the, these, these just, just animals are behaving around, for example, Asya Bibi right now, if that's the only relationship you have to Muslims and what people within Muslim societies are like, then of course you're going to think that people like me are the exception, right? So, so, so I think the solution is that we have to ensure that we allow Muslims their full humanity and full complexity and diversity of, of who we actually are. And we have to ensure that, that, that more stories are told and that more voices are, are brought to the forefront so that Western people can see for themselves what kind of incredible people exist and what kind of, and people who, not just incredible people, but, but you know, it's, it's not the exception. <laughs> people who, who, who live by and want to live by, you know, secular, but sp spiritually centered religious communities. And, and in fact, one of the things that I did think when, when I was listening to you and Miriam, and Miriam is a really, really dear friend, and I have such tremendous respect for her. 
I disagree with her about a lot of things like, you know, like anyone does. But one of the things that I kept thinking is if I ever get to meet Sam and if I ever get to talk to Sam, I want to invite him to dinner many, many, many times. And I want to introduce him to more Muslims because I feel like you don't know enough Muslims. I will be happy to come to those dinners. And I think you, you are going to be just balled over and you're going to make so many new friends. And I think you're going to be quite excited about the kinds of things that are going on within, within the Muslim world. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the groups that I do a lot of work with is, is this loosely knit uh, network of women all across these various war zones at this point. And it's, it's very, very pious women. It's, it's some very secular women, some liberal women, some believing, some not believing women who are actively confronting extremism, who are actively de-radicalizing men who, who, you know, fell into Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS and are dismantling militias and are also maintaining peace even in the times of war. And these women, you don't know who they are. You don't know their names. Nobody knows their name. You know, they don't get to come on Bill Maher. They don't get to, you know, they don't get to be written about in the New York Times. Wow, the things are getting really loud here. And, and so that's what we need. So because people in America don't know that all these people exist is why it becomes easier for them to believe Richard Spencer's version of, of who we are or Donald Trump's version of who we are. So we just have to do a better job. And, and I do really appreciate, it's one of the reasons I said, to, said yes to this, because you know, I, I, I appreciate that you, you wanted to have me on. And I also appreciate the fact that you have a you know, very diverse audience who I think are interested. The impression that I get is that they're interested in a lot of these issues, but they might also not be exposed to a lot of different people who, who come from the background that I come from. Here's the plan, Dia. Dinner party. Oh, we, we, <laughs> we definitely need the dinner party, but we, we probably need <laughs> some public-facing version of the dinner party where, you know, you yeah. and yeah. and me and Majid and Ayan and your heroic women get together and have a conversation about everything we just touched. Yeah. But, but you know, it's, it's the, you know, again, the problems that I have with, with, with you know, with Ayan and uh, uh, to an extent with Majid as well is, you know, it's, it's so growing up sort of finding myself stuck between cultures, you know, again, you're not enough this and you're not enough that, but also having experienced a lot of racism and, and problems because of my skin color and, and my, my faith. And then on the other hand, experiencing a lot of problems from my parents' community because of my gender. You know, I, I, always was really sensitive and, and really worried and afraid that I didn't want to say anything about what was happening, what, what, what I was seeing was happening within some families within our communities, because I was so afraid that white people were going to, left or right, doesn't really matter, but the white people were going to use that and instrumentalize our pain and our, our difficulties and our struggles to promote anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim hysteria. I was so afraid and, and, and it was suffocating for so many years for me because I didn't want them to go, see, see how horrible these people are? Why do we want these people here? But then I got to a point where I realized that I refused to be silent about abuse 
that's going on within the community because otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm just a part of the problem and I'm allowing for that to happen and I no longer wish to give that any permission. But what I also realize is abuse is abuse. Violence against women is violence against women. And I also realize that it's perfectly fine and perfectly possible to speak out about those issues while also speaking out about, you know, issues, you know, other other issues that I care about, whether it's, you know, colonialism or, or you know, the, the kind of abhorrent foreign policies, you know, that we see from, you know, some of our countries, or violence against women, you know, who who are not brown or black, but who are white and, and whose whose plight is completely overshadowed by an obsession just with Muslim women and, and the suffering of Muslim women. And, and the, the reality is, like I said earlier, is we are dealing with it. And there are women who are fighting day and night and young men who are shoulder to shoulder with us fighting day and night against some of these issues. And I guess silence is not an option. But I think we also have to ensure that our silence, we can also cannot be silent now when, when the populist and the extreme right is rising in this way, because that also doesn't help any of us. And that's not just a matter of the left is doing this or that. It's a matter of, you know, we also have to be responsible, I think, in, in how we may or may not contributing to whatever hysteria that they are experiencing on the right against people who are Muslim, right? I predict that there's going to be a great rise of white supremacy and that I'm just going to be hiding at one Muslim dinner party after another. You really are. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so we'll I'll see you there. Together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen to you. It's been really a pleasure and an honor to finally get you on the podcast. And uh, I will be pushing people to uh, see both your films in whatever links I can find to them on, on my blog. I'll send you some links. Great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And uh, until we meet in person, please take care of yourself and don't stop. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.